You're listening to the Plane Talking UK podcast, the UK-based podcast written by a passenger for anyone. And here are your hosts, Carlos Stevings, Matt Smith and Neville Bounds. Well, hello and welcome to episode number 241 of the Plane Talking UK podcast. I'm Carl Stemmings and back with me in the PTUK studio this week is my co-host Matt Hello Smith. everyone, hello. Yes, I'm not down the line this week. It's, uh, it's back in the studio for me. Yes, I had my week off. It was fun. I enjoyed yeah, you, it. Yeah, yeah. It seems like you enjoyed yourself. Yeah, Although you did return slightly early because we had a downturn in the weather. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that. So, so actually, ironically, uh, well, we were back Saturday. We, yeah. so we came back Saturday because we had a lovely time. And we really had had a lovely time. I was just desperate for it not to be ruined by the fact that the caravan, we had an awning <laughs> on the side of it. And essentially, the awning was moving the caravan like a big sail. Uh, <laughs> so we decided it was, uh, uh, and then because it turned very cold as well. So we sort of decided that rather than spoil the holiday, we would come home a bit early and have a couple of days at home so that's exactly what we did good fun did i do all right matt with the button uh, pushing and did, stuff absolutely. like that so i was a bit worried right. I was just, I was very yeah. can you just tilt your camera down a little bit for me look okay. here a bit uh, sorry there there you, you can tell i'm back can't you uh yes yeah, it's uh, i, I, yeah, no, I mean, you did I, very well i was i was very impressed was there much editing i didn't do stuff. any <gasps> i didn't do any i literally <gasps> just chopped the beginning and end off and that was it oh fantastic i'm glad of that i'm glad of that so, uh, uh, for those of you uh, joining us in the world of uh, YouTube, welcome to you this morning. We have actually got uh, uh, two guests with us on the show this morning. And uh, our first guest, for those of you who follow us on Twitter and uh, Facebook, uh, will probably have seen this, uh, this young pilot on the show before. And we'll know that he had a slight little accident a little while back um, to do, not with an aircraft, not with an aircraft, <laughs> but with a motorbike. And uh, I'm not going to say, or oh, told you so, Stuart, but I did say I don't <gasps> ride oh. motorbikes. So, welcome on to the show. He's back again, our awesome pilot and uh, and the flight instructor as well. It's yeah. Stuart O'Neill. Hi. Good day, all. Uh, good to be here. Thank you for having me. And, uh, yeah, sorry for being disabled and a bit slow this morning. It's <laughs> all right. You are forgiven. Oh, so how are things, Stuart? How, I mean, obviously, you're missing flying. You've not been on the line now for a little while. So um, yeah. I'll take it you're probably looking forward to getting back. In uh, the... Yeah, and, and uh, getting away from my, my nurse who's like, given up. <laughs> uh, she worked for the first two days, and then the last month has just been sheer terror. Because <laughs> oh. now I can't run away from the frying pans or right. the flying yeah. objects. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, but I do look forward to flying as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I, I, I bet you just can't wait to get back. Because we do miss, uh, obviously, miss hearing the stories and stuff and seeing you obviously flying and stalking you across the country wherever <laughs> oh. you are, you know, as we do. Well, but, no, I've been stalking other people, actually. So oh. I'm doing a bit of work from home at the moment in uh, operations manuals for the company. Oh, right. So I'm doing some work from the desktop. Oh, yeah. oh so the company are keeping you working then? Yeah, well, it's kind of good for me. It keeps me on yeah. the payroll kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, that's good. But, uh, yeah, no, it's a good experience. So, uh, well, I can tell you about it later. All right. All right. Yeah. So we have a guest joining us from across the pond this morning. It's uh, it's incredibly late where he is, but he's joined us anyway. Uh, so we're going to welcome onto the show. He's the Lord of ATC over in Australia. <laughs> it's Ben Ippolito. Good morning, Ben, or good afternoon, or good evening good where evening, you are. Yeah. It's definitely evening over here. Uh, hello from Melbourne, Australia, and uh, Lord of ATC. No, I don't think so, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good to have a goal, isn't it? <laughs> so how, how are things with you, yes. Ben? Uh, it's been good. Uh, since the last time I talked to you, I've actually moved basically across the country, almost literally. Uh, I was in Caratha, Western Australia last time, uh, and now I'm back home, uh, my hometown of Melbourne. And uh, through the wonders of modern technology, I'm actually doing approach control through a 
for a place uh, called Adelaide, which is uh, about uh, 400 nautical miles from here. And wow. uh, they they bring it all back through uh, the wonders of technology, and we do it from here now. So wow. I've uh, changed positions again. I'm now a radar approach controller, so it's uh, something a little bit different. That, have you got one of those simulated towers with cameras and screens that surround you there? Because they've been practicing with that in London City, simulated indoor towers. Uh, they they did try that a few years ago. The problem that we have is uh, you guys are trying to do it with London City, which is very close to Heathrow. Mm. Uh, we're trying to do it for uh, the trial that we ran was at our place called Apple Springs, which is basically right in the middle of the country, and they did it from Adelaide, which is about 2,500 kilometres away. So we're trying to do it over great distances, and the bandwidth is uh, being – that's our main technical issue. Yeah, I can imagine. Goodness me. So, I mean, what kind of chat? Sorry, I, I, I suppose we should really be having Start this the conversation show, yeah. later on. Yeah. But, I mean, what kind of uh, challenges is that bringing you? I mean, how does it feel from your point of view to be sat there with, uh, you know, essentially, I suppose, I mean, you're aware of what's going on around you, but it must be weird knowing that it's not in front of you, if you see what I mean. Uh, well, we don't do the remote tower thing yet. Uh, that's still in a trial phase. Um, we're not doing an active trial at the moment. They're still reconsidering mm -hmm. uh, it for a few things, probably more East Coast to start with, uh, if we do something like that. But at the moment, it's uh, with our technology limits, are sort of basically we can do approach control and on route right. control from the other side of the country, but we can't do anything that needs a visual component to it because it's just too much bandwidth to bring if you're not local oh, should we talk about that but a radar signal yeah. not that much yeah we'll come back to that uh, we'll come back to that that subject a little bit later on then let's get the boring may, old but, news uh, out of the way as, uh, as uh, <laughs> uh, keen viewers will have noticed that a certain person is missing yes uh, from today's show uh he's uh away at the moment he's, he's nev is kind of doing a bit of ptuk work and a kind of bit of holidaying yeah this he week. Did. He, but uh i did interrupt him very briefly actually <gasps> while you? we were away and and he sent this in so. oh oh hello yes well here we are in gibraltar and uh, sorry they can't be on the show today uh but uh sue and i came out here on Thursday of this week, the first part of the week was absolutely diabolical in terms of weather, but luckily, as I say, we didn't get here until Thursday, when it was perfect. So it was 19 or 20 degrees, and I'm recording this on Saturday when it's due to be 21 degrees, which is brilliant, so that's uh, really nice. Um, I thought I'd just give you a sort of a quick run through of uh, some of the things we've been up to here. Uh, I've got my trusty Mac with me here, so uh, I'll just run you through um, how we got here and all the rest of it. Um, we started off uh, by flying into Jib. Now, as you may know, Gibraltar's quite an unusual airport in that it's got a runway which is uh, designated east-west, 2709, but also goes straight across the middle of a, a road, which is Winston Churchill Avenue. Yeah. So they have to stop all the traffic in order to do that. They've got that off to a, a fine art, I have to say, so um, uh, it should be quite interesting to, uh, to see it. But um, so we just, uh, as we were flying into Gibraltar, we're just flying across the, uh, the sea initially, uh, and then we do a, a right turn and uh, just before we uh, configure the aircraft and all the rest of it. And then uh, just to, here we are just coming over the threshold uh, of 2.7. Now it's only 6,000 feet of runway, so you really can't uh, pussyfoot around, as uh, Captain Al would say. So uh, the chap's got it stopped very quickly. BA, obviously, just going across the road there, as you might have seen. This is uh, BA490 from... Uh, 
Heathrow, and uh, so and a perfect day for it. But that's not always the case in Gibraltar. And in fact, actually, a flight on the 30th of um, October got diverted to Malaga, and then they uh, coach people back to uh, Gibraltar, which is about a two-hour trip which is not so nice. But uh, as you can see, they're absolutely perfect. And this is the cemetery, which is right next to the runway itself. I'm hoping there's no connection between the two. Mm. But uh, this is a view from the runway side of our hotel, which is at the Holiday Inn Express. And uh, this is Gibraltar's main street itself. This is the main high street that goes right through the centre of the town. And uh, it's full of people, normally because there is a ship, cruise ship, that's just come into dock and lots of people come here for their duty-free and a walk around the, the town. But uh, as you can see, the weather was uh, very nice indeed, but uh, quite busy, and this, this does happen from time to time uh, in the town. But nonetheless, there's plenty to see and do, and uh, yeah, very worthwhile trip, I must say. Um, I think that the other thing is about Gibraltar, that it's, it's a very sort of special place. It's obviously very British for many reasons. And this is Casemate Square, and this is where they have uh, large events from time to time. But generally speaking, it's uh, used by the uh, public for coffee, fish and chips, sit down in the sunshine and that kind of thing. And Sue and I have been here previously when it has been extremely wet. It's been like a river that's been flowing down through Casemate Square. But actually, as you can see, it's been uh, very nice indeed. And um, yeah, so I've uh, been really enjoying it over the last couple of days, just uh, getting to familiarise ourselves with, with the place again. This is uh, Ocean Village. It's a, a sea area off the other side of the um, area of Gibraltar. Uh, and it's Marina Bay as well, and there's some extremely expensive boats and ships there. That's the uh, hotel and casino, which is the Sunborn. Uh, that is a permanently moored ship, which is uh, there for all to enjoy. We couldn't afford to stay there this time because it's about five times the price of the Holiday Inn Express, but you know, nonetheless, it looked quite nice. As you can see, there's a, a lot of hardware here in terms of boats and ships, and uh, this port is used extensively uh, by all sorts of people, especially when the weather's as good as it is as well uh, this week. Um, it's not going to be so nice on Monday though, which is a bit of a shame. Uh, it's going to deteriorate on Monday morning, so lots of lots of wind and, and nasty weather, uh, which does happen from time to time in Gibraltar because of, of where it is uh, based, right at the southern tip of Spain. Um, so, uh, but uh, yes, as you can see, all, all very nice. Got a very special day coming up on Monday morning because I'm doing an interview with the head of ATC, uh, mm. the general manager of ATC actually, at uh, Gibraltar Tower. So that's taken us a little while to tee up because uh, it's uh, all owned by the MOD, but uh, NATS are the, are the operating uh, air traffic control system there for the civil flights. But uh, anyway, so we'll be showing that interview at a later date. Meanwhile, I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks, Nev. Thanks, Nev. Oh. And of course, let's not forget, of course, the the, re the other reason why he's out there and why he's out there with Auntie uh, with Auntie Sue. Uh, it's his, is it was his, it was his birthday. birthday on the Monday, oh. and that's and uh, yeah. uh, as is traditional oh. with any of us who have been on the show, uh, who work on the show, uh, a message is usually sent in from the legend that is. So uh, here's a little special message from Uncle Micah. Kenwood KR seventy six hundred, TX thirty three forty, Technics SL ten. Akai GXC 570D, Phase Linear 1000, Shure SME 3009, Stanton 881S, Ampex VR660, Nev knows what I'm talking about. No, these aren't military aircraft designations, not GA nor commercial aircraft either. 
They're some of the amazing, spectacular analog devices that gave us music in the late 1970s. A transistor stereo receiver, made even before IC chips were introduced. A 10-inch, four-channel, reel-to-reel tape deck. A linear tracking turntable. A three-head cassette deck. An autocorrelator dynamic range expander. A tone arm. A record cartridge. A videotape recorder. Nev recognizes most of them. This is what we had before all the digital technology we have today with sound cards, LED monitors, and hard drives. What we have now is easier, less expensive for sure, and it gives us far more control than we once had. You no longer cut your fingers with razor blades when you make edits. There's no more blood in your work, although tears may still occur. Nev may have scars on his fingertips. We've gained a lot, but we've lost some things too. There was a warmth to analog. It's hard to describe, but it's different than digital. Sometimes you can hear it right away. Sometimes you have to actively listen. If I had you listen to the same thing back to back, one recorded or played back in analog, one digitally, you'd know what I mean. Nev gets it. And with videotape? There was a velvet nature and brightness to it. It looked live, sometimes more live than life. It was real. It flowed. It was smooth. Nev's seen this. Okay, so why am I talking about high-end analog audio video equipment and mentioning Nev all along? Well, last year, I described Nev as a man whose gleaming digital essence is filled with a big analog heart, and it's his analog heart I'm describing to you. Nev exudes warmth. He's velvety smooth. He's bright, and it all flows together. He's an analog guy. So happy birthday, Nev. And as you age, bear in mind that there are those of all ages who remember and even prefer the pleasures of old equipment. For Plain Talking UK here in Portland, Maine, this is your main man, Micah. Well, there's, there, there's, there's a thing to ne it. Never a word said wrong there. Thank you, Ned. Wow. Thank, oh, thank Micah. you, Micah. Okay, that was so yeah, good. So happy birthday. Yeah, happy birthday. Is, uh, Neville of Bounds, and I hope you are really having an amazing time where you are in, in Gibraltar. It certainly looks lovely, doesn't it? I know. It does look yeah. lovely. Thanks for sending that in, Nev. Awesome work, as yeah, always, with Nev. the camera. Will you stop no, saying that? with the uh, video work. Oh, I see. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. you know probably why, because, guys... Did you notice the equipment he did have was an Apple Mac? And I don't see what uh, it is. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. So you've got your iPad. You're represented. It's all good. Actually, and on that note, it was a certain long-suffering wife's birthday as well was, this week. Because yes. Gemma celebrated her birthday on yep. the 2nd of November. And I just want to say a quick thanks as well. Again, she did ask me to just say to Micah, uh, big thanks because she actually got a card. She was so excited. She oh, like, she? got oh, a card from Micah. The legend that is. And, oh, yeah, and she was so, so chuffed <laughs> yeah. with that. So thanks for that, Micah. Uh, anyway, we probably should do some actual yes. aviation related stuff. Let's now. get on. So uh, yes. we are going to start the show then, as we do each week, with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. So if you're ready, Matt. I am. I'm pressing buttons frantically. And yes. Stu? Oh, yeah, I'm ready. Ben? I'm ready. Let's go. So 
soaking off this week's first news story. It's on the bbc.co.uk website. And uh, this story was actually sent in to us by Mariana. So thanks for that, Mariana. Uh, This uh, headline is uh, SAA, or South African Airways, should be shut down, says Finance Minister Tito Mbawini. I think I pronounced that right-ish. <laughs> South Africa's well, state-owned... you know we'll get emails. I know. <laughs> South Africa's state-owned airline should be shut down, the country's new finance minister has said. It's loss-making and we are unlikely to sort out the situation, so many view uh, it would be to close it down, he said uh, the, in a conference in the US. One of Africa's biggest airlines, South Africa Airways, has lost money every year since 2011. Wow. And uh, it's uh, among the struggling state firms that the president promises to revive. Just over three weeks into his post, Mr. Babwani has uh, keen to show uh, how there are no longer any sacred cows for the government and a country facing huge economic challenges, uh, says BBC's Andrew Harding. While it's not yet a government policy, the finance minister has made uh, clear the urgent need to slash spending. And uh, the CEO of South African Airways, Vuani Jana, is reported by Reuters uh, to uh, news agencies saying that he is mapping out a strict austerity plan to turn the national carrier around, including making redundancies. Uh, South African Airways has quietly scaled back on the number of flights and routes it operates, according to the aviation website Simple Flying. It says European carriers like BA and Lufthansa have uh, since seized it as an opportunity to expand their South African presence. It's a shame when when you see an airline, especially an airline, a state-owned airline Mm. uh, like this, having troubles, because we all imagine that uh, airlines that are owned or run or kind of thing by the country they're based in are kind of there forever, like BA yeah. and in the UK, and uh, and like the airlines that are based in like Malta, Air Malta, yeah. for, say for instance. But it just proves that you know anyone can have a, a bit of a, a spot of bottom. I mean, presumably they aren't actually government owned these days, are they? I mean, BA, for example, obviously isn't owned by. I think they get government support. Oh, do um, But the trouble, I think one of the biggest problems is Matt is that. Mm. Um, airlines, there are quite a few airlines that fly from the UK, such as BA uh, and uh, I think Virgin as well, who fly out to South Africa and that quite a lot, so they do take quite a lot of of the, the of trade, the essentially, trade essentially yeah, okay. from uh, from. Do South they fly? Africa. Do they fly much here into into say London? Yeah, they fly. I think they fly into Heathrow and Gatwick. I think that they oh, do. Yeah, 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 South African. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so it's yeah, uh, they're a big operator. Um, it's a bit sad. I've I was did my PPL originally. You did, Africa, didn't you? So I've oh, met quite a few SAA pilots. Yeah. Um, it's not really the golden days it used to be, um, and with the government changes over in Africa and uh, empowerment, reducing the racism obviously, which is great, but the empowerment of the of the company has actually caused a lot of issues within. Uh, so I know lots of people were leaving not that long ago. Really, wow. An um, airline you've heard uh, much about, uh, Ben? Uh, no, well, South African only actually uh, flies to one city in Australia, which is Perth. So uh, they go there from Johannesburg. Uh, Qantas does the other half of that uh, loop. They do that from uh, Sydney uh, through to Joburg. So, uh, but uh, South Af- it sounds like they're just uh, the same sort of problem that it's a lot of state-owned air- airlines are having now, which, uh, like, you know, uh, well, I'm a half Italian, so yeah, Alitalia for anyone yeah. uh, knows how to lose a lot of money. Uh, Air India, there's there's a lot of legacy air, uh, state-owned airlines that uh, have been sort of held up for so long with the state cash that they probably need to really. I mean, 
a lot of countries don't have the Chapter 11 benefit that the Americans do, so yeah. that uh, changes it a little bit. But, uh, yeah, state-owned airlines have just uh, probably run a lot with the unions and things like that, making demands of getting paid ridiculous amounts of money that you can't afford anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's definitely a changing industry, isn't mm. it? Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, the, the, the changes probably in the last sort of 10 years have been very dramatic, haven't they? I mean, it, it has changed so much the landscape the problem is well, now you've got so many you've got a lot of choice now you know even though we have had a lot of airlines that have failed in the last few years there is still a lot of choice for people now when they want to fly to these destinations they haven't just got the choice of one or two airlines yeah. they've got four yeah, five four, six five. seven airlines they can choose yeah. from so. and people are always uh, looking at budgets and budgets, prices yes. and things like that so yeah. the low-cost airlines you know some people literally don't mind the the lack of frills do mm. they and uh, on that subject actually we'll move mm. on to the next story this is uh, on the independent and it's Ryanair changing their baggage rules again as Ryanair confirms however that there is going to be a grace period oh, time. for new hand luggage rules to last an entire month which I dare say won't be long enough but uh, Ryanair has confirmed it's offering a grace period for an entire month on its new hand luggage policy. On the 1st of November, the airline officially changed its rules, requiring customers to pay extra if they want to take more than one mid-size bag with them on flights. However, the airline said yesterday it would initially be lenient while customers get used to the change. Today, it confirmed that it, this will continue until the end of the month. Ryanair told The Independent in a statement, while our new policy came into effect yesterday, that was the 1st of November, we have briefed our gate agents to take a reasonable approach while customers get used to the new rules over the month of November. Passengers who turn up at the airport with a second bag without having paid for priority boarding or to check a bag in should be subject to a €25 Euro fee, but this is generally being waived by gate agents this month. We've decided we are going to have a grace period and waive fees weeks ago. Uh, Ryanair spokesman Kenny Jacobs said on RTEs This Morning Ireland, adding that this would last until the end of November. Ryanair announced the changes in August, which require passengers to pay six pounds to between six and eight pounds for priority boarding if they want to take a bag of up to ten kilograms and measuring no more than twenty-five by forty by twenty centimeters into the cabin, or eight pounds to ten pounds to check in a ten kilogram case in the hold. Priority boarding is capped at 95 people per flight, around about half of the passengers. The airline said the new rules will uh, affect only 40% of customers as 30% already buy priority boarding and 30% take um, just one small bag on board. This, the move is allegedly to improve timekeeping. Punctuality has been a challenge this year, said Kenny Jacobs, the airline's chief marketing officer said. We've uh, flagged uh, for a while, a while that while we love offering two cabin bags, it was creating a problem at the boarding gates. We want to protect our punctuality. However, Ryanair made two million three hundred and four thousand seven hundred and forty-eight. Oh, I don't, hang on, no, it's two billions. Billion. Two billions three hundred and four <laughs> million seven hundred and forty-eight thousand eight hundred and twenty-seven. Uh, so it's 1.8 billion pounds uh, in ancillary revenue, all extras on top of the fare in 2017, 28.2% of all its pre-tax revenue. That number is likely to get even more of a boost with the new policy. Now, I remember a time when it was only ever one cabin bag in the first place. Mm. And it, and it wasn't that long ago. I mean, I don't really understand why they changed. I mean, surely they knew that it, it was going to... 
they were going to run out of hat bin space. <laughs> I, I think they just keep changing it so that customers start thinking every time they book their ticket, oh, I better pay for the extra luggage option. Because so I, everyone will always sure. click it. Yeah. 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 I think yeah. I think it said to Matt earlier before we started the show. I think this will this is uh, going to catch a few people out. I do think yeah. there'll be quite a few people who turn up for the flights and stuff who probably haven't seen or heard the news, and it will catch them out because they'll be expecting to take yeah. four hundred handbags yeah. and yeah. six suitcases <laughs> on, and uh, that isn't going to happen. No, so. it's not. That's, it's, that's the problem that they they've had now in the US that uh, they they changed the rules mm. that they started charging for bags, and then all the uh, the cabin. Yeah, the overhead bins in the cabin started filling up, and everyone yeah. that became the next problem. And now you get Spirit, I think, charges for bags. Um, and I've been in the states a couple of times, and you, you hear these announcements where they say the flight is full. If you want to check a bag, you can do it for free, and that's yeah. that, that kind of negates the point. Mm. But the other thing with this article too is that they say, oh, you know, it's it's the discretion of the gate agent. So if the gate agent's having a bad day, they yeah. they charge you the full. <laughs> 25 euro or uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what their guidelines are. They don't seem very clear. If they're a Ryanair member of staff, they'll be getting commission on that uh, gate charge as uh, well. Probably. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, Mariana said in the chat room, she said that after the grace period is finished, that Ryanair will probably change their baggage policy again. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Keep everyone on their toes. And apparently Mash has just said in the chat room that Ryanair are not very popular over there at the moment because they're trying to close the Eindhoven base. Okay. Yeah. Is that because they're not making... Oh, there um, might be contractual issues with German staff, is it? I possibly. Possibly, yeah. yeah. There might be more to do with um, gate agents. And things. What, one positive thing. Okay. Very oh, difficult oh, okay. to say anything right. positive <laughs> about Ryan. Okay. Okay. Oh, brace yourselves, everyone. <laughs> Get everyone the diary. No, I was just thinking about it just now. Uh, one positive thing. It makes people aware of actually why, why flying is so expensive because of the weight of the bags. A lot of people yeah. don't think about that. So, you know, why take... You know, ten pairs of shoes for one weekend. Yeah. You've probably all had yeah. this dilemma. Well, not I, we haven't had this dilemma, but, no, no, but I've exactly, seen, it makes people seen think. The suitcase at home for oh, yeah. oh, have you? Right, okay. But it <laughs> makes people think: Do I really need to carry all that stuff on a short flight? But maybe it's one positive. Yeah, well, no, actually, all, all jokes aside, it's one of the reasons why Mum has a Kindle, because uh, Mum is a very fast reader, and so Mum will quite easily, in a week's holiday, read eight books. And if you imagine, if you had to take eight books with you on holiday, that is your hand luggage full. So. <laughs> So, you know, it's, but as I say, it always used to be, as you say, you, you can't help but feel a little suspicious that maybe this is just to catch people out. But, mm. uh, or, or we can say, the only piece of advice I think we could say with this and any other airline is always make sure that you do check your homework. regularly, do your homework and make yeah. sure that there aren't any, uh, I mean, the people who are listening to this show, they're doing that anyway, aren't they? Obviously. Because, you know, that that, that is the nature of our marvellous listener, but... Uh, so moving on to the next story, and Stuart, this one oh, is yep. a bit of a uh, bit of a sleepy story for you. It is Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like this one. Yeah, airline worker falls asleep in plane cargo hold in Kansas City, wakes up in Chicago. Oh wow! <laughs> an airline worker fell asleep in the cargo hold of an American Airlines flight at the Kansas City International Airport and woke up in Chicago. American said the male worker, who was not identified, is an employee of Piedmont Airlines who inadvertently fell asleep in the forward cargo hold of a Boeing 737-800 aircraft. The flight then took off with the worker still in the cargo hold, luckily for him, which was heated and pressurised, really? according to a statement from American Airlines. After little more than an hour, the flight landed at Chicago O'Hare International Airport where the employee was found. He was not injured during the flight. Our top priority is ensuring the well-being of the Piedmont employee, 
He did not request any medical attention upon arrival in Chicago, and we are grateful that he did not sustain any injuries, the airline said. The American team is very concerned about this serious situation, and we are reviewing what transpired with our Piedmont and Kansas City colleagues. And that's from the Time magazine, time.com. Wow. I think not, most aircraft holds, I don't think, are they always heated? No, they're pressurized? not. Um, so we have different aircraft have different types of holds. So we have ones that can carry live animals and ones that can't. It really depends on, on what, well, how they were manufactured, I guess, or it, what they were intended for. It depends for. a lot on the aircraft, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, what, 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 what makes the decision, though, as to whether it's pressurized and heated or not? It depends what the operator wants. So, okay. Yeah. Right. Depends if they're planning on using it. I, so, I don't know why, wait, wait, but some wait, wait, of what? our fleet, in, in my company, some of our fleet can carry live animals and some of them can't. Right, okay. So it's so, more for like if you are carrying that that sort of cargo rather than mm. just sort of yeah. or, you know stuff that's likely to be in the hold. I mean, presumably, uh, for financial reasons alone, I suppose, if all you're ever doing, you know, let's say Ryanair or EasyJet and they're not carrying those kind of things, presumably they wouldn't bother with the expense of heating and, and pressurising. Exactly, it would save yeah. fuel on the, on the yeah. fuel burn on the pressurisation. That's why when your bag gets to the other end with Ryanair, it normally comes out frozen. And cold, cold, indeed. It depends on the aircraft, but it's like the seven three. Uh, what's this? This is an eight hundred. So the airline I used to work for, what well, let's call them Acme Blue, because we we like the Acme family of airlines. Um, now that we had a seven three eight hundreds, the front is is always heated. Uh, you can't actually turn it off. It's just the way the seven three is, uh, and right. both both cargo holds are pressurized. Uh, and he's very lucky he fell asleep in the front, not the back. But yeah. the thing is that the front, like the the hold of a seven three seven, is not terribly big. To load it, you have to be on your knees, like that's sort of the the height of it. Uh, and it only goes from the door back to sort of about just past the leading edge of the wing. So it's only maybe five meters long so whoever locked the door obviously wasn't looking terribly no. hard yeah anybody else well he was skiving uh, and hiding behind the person the who's asleep waiting for bags is probably yeah. going to be a little bit easy to see yeah I, um, they would have thought what worries me is that they would have seen him missing like 10 15 20 minutes but when yeah. the plane was taxiing pushing back from the ramp they would have gone oh where, where's where's where's, where's vlogs yeah <laughs> absolutely just... yeah that's he's, his mates are uh, you need a stern, stern talking to him probably 10 biscuits i'd yeah. say <laughs> or or he was intentionally going to visit some family in chicago and thought ah. i can get there for free Right, Possibly. I mean, there's a, there's a risky strategy. I'll, yeah. give, I'll, I'll give him that. Yeah. I, know, I know staff travel's bad, but that's, 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 <laughs> that is true. So the next story, and uh, Ben, it's uh, a, a New Zealand story for you. Uh, yeah, this is uh, Air New Zealand, or Air New Zealand, uh, if you want the accent, uh, takes delivery of its uh, first 13 new Airbus aircraft and... I'll take the hate mail from all the Kiwis now. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'll we'll we'll, we'll forward them on, Ben. It's fine. <laughs> <don't you? laughs> Air New Zealand's newest aircraft, the uh, first of a $1.6 billion order, is en route to Auckland. On Thursday, the national carrier officially took delivery of its first A321neo. That's the new engine option. Oh, yeah. uh, it was expected to arrive in Auckland on late Monday evening. The aircraft with the registration Zulu Kilo November November Alpha is the first of 13 new Airbus Neo aircraft to join Air New Zealand's fleet. In 2014, Air New Zealand announced the $1.6 billion deal for seven A321neos, as six A320neos, and one 
ordinary A320. At the time, a New Zealand Chief Executive, Christopher Luxon, said the new aircraft offered fuel savings of 15% and would save the national carrier $1.9 million on fuel a year. Wow. That's quite a saving, isn't it? The, it's rather good, yes. Uh, these have got the sharklets as well, because that's the Neo comes yep. with the sharklets as well. Mm -hmm. uh, the new aircraft departed uh, Airbus's Hamburg facility on Saturday to begin a four-day journey to Auckland. Uh, like most of the narrow bodies that come to this part of the world, they kind of stop all stations. Uh, this one went via Oman, Kuala Lumpur, Cairns, uh, and then on to Auckland with a small team of nine on board. The first mm -hmm. aircraft was expected to enter commercial service on November 23, operating as uh, flight NZ739 from Auckland back across the Tasman to Brisbane. The mm -hmm. second A321neo was expected to enter service in the coming weeks. The majority of the remaining aircraft would follow at intervals through until late 2019, with the new fleet eventually replacing the airline's A320s that service the Tasman and the Pacific Islands. Uh, further, seven uh, 321neos have also been ordered for the airline's domestic network and are expected to be delivered from 2020 to 2024. Wow. So, yes, uh, this has sort of been a bit of a news item here. The mm -hmm. 321 is obviously bigger than the uh, than the regular 320, so it's giving them a bit of an upgrade in their capacity as well as cutting the... Uh, the, the cost of the flight. I believe the 321neo actually still burns less than the 320... Uh, the normal 320 does uh, and yeah it's ca uh, capable of taking more passengers essentially mm. yeah the 320 yeah so this this gives some additional capacity especially um brisbane's quite constrained at the moment uh because their parallel runway hasn't come online yet uh they've they're still building it mm. so um they it's actually becoming it's, it's looking so much like a runway that actually next week they're changing the runway numbering oh really to, um, to, <laughs> To, to make the old runway uh, runway zero one right, okay. uh, so that so that pilots don't get confused and try and land on the uh, the uh, unused runway at the moment. Oh wow! What do you think of the three twenty one? Then the new runway doesn't come on till next year, and then uh, that that will help Brisbane out quite a lot because basically they're they're kind of doing a Gatwick at the moment that they're operating single runway. Right. Mm. Um, that they they're just running out of capacity. Which I think is going to be a problem with a lot of airports, isn't it? Actually, mm. I mean, it's uh, I mean that's why they're sort of they're they're com campaigning obviously for a third runway at uh, Heathrow for that very same reason, isn't it? Because Heathrow is essentially running out of capacity. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say about the A three twenty one. You're asking me after a minute, Carl. Um, I was speaking to a friend, uh, an EasyJet friend, actually the other day about the introduction of the A three twenty one Neo, and there's a lot of fear about it because it's um it basically it's just an extended one, and you can see how close those engines are to the tarmac. But uh, there's a difference. I'm sure some Airbus pilots will correct me now. But um, as I stand, understand it, the A319 and the A320 could have a pitch-up angle on takeoff of 11 degrees, whereas the A321neo can only have a pitch-up of 9 degrees. So they're very, very scared that they're going to get a few tail strikes on rotations with these new aircraft oh, really? with, with old staff. You know, mm. if you've been trained all the time to pitch up to 8 or 9, then you suddenly bring it to 6 or 7. So, uh, yeah, watch out. There might be a tail strike from an A321 in New Zealand. It happened quite a few times with BA when they transitioned, apparently. Ah. So I was going to say, that's my one little bit of knowledge about the A321. Those engines, because when you look at the pictures uh, on there, the engines just look so large, you know, in comparison to the fuselage. You cast your minds back to the old, sort of older CFMs and, and the Pratt engines and stuff, which are a, a lot, lot smaller than this. Mm. But um, mm. I'm yet to fly on one as yet, but 
Yeah, well, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. So moving on. Yeah, there's, there's the, you've got the pod strike risk, and then because the aircraft's so long, um, that you have, you have that other. But the, the Airbus is a little bit harder because the computer actually basically tries to fight you. Yeah, but it can't on takeoff if you try to the on the ground. But it, it will it will let you, but it will try and fight yeah. you. But on the ground, on the takeoff rotate, is the bit when the, the actual pilot's in charge. The, the one bit that they are allowed to touch yeah. the controls. That's good. <laughs> Might have you on next week, Stuart. <laughs> so moving on to the next story. And, uh, well, this is, this is quite uh, an interesting one. For those of you who have heard of the uh, brewery, the BrewDog Brewery. Oh, yes. And uh, this one's on the metro.co.uk website. And BrewDog... Uh, launches first ever craft beer airline. What? Really? <laughs> oh, uh, so man. BrewDog is set to launch the world's first ever craft beer airline, which will take off in February next year. The flight will take place on a bespoke branded Boeing 767 and will fly from London Stansted to Columbus, Ohio, where the BrewDog Brewery is based. Passengers on the flight will get the full brew dog experience over the four-day trip uh, with a tour of the brewery and a day trip to Cincinnati for more beer-related activities. The brewers have created a craft beer that is designed to taste better at high altitude, so the flight is the perfect chance for beer lovers to test this out. Passengers will also get to, to sample beer cocktails and food and beer pairings during the journey. The airline's the latest venture from BrewDog after the brand already announced that they will open a hotel next year, complete with beer taps in each room and a beer fridge in the shower. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, the <laughs> flight isn't open to just anyone. To get a seat on the aircraft, you have have to be an equity punk, which in layman's terms means one of the brew dog's many investors. Uh -huh. Uh, if uh, that's you, you'll be able to apply for a seat on the flight for £1,250 per person or £2,250 for two people sharing a room. That includes accommodation at downtown Columbus Hotel and all the day trips. It's not looking good if you're already uh, not already an equity punk because the application to become a BrewDog investor has now closed for UK residents. But there will be chances to win tickets for the flight, so keep an eye on the BrewDog's Facebook page and Instagram page for more details. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> How much do you want to be on that flight, oh. Carlos? Come on. Well, I be so, so basically it's a flying stag do. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That, yeah, basically that is true. Yeah, yeah. flying stag too. I wonder if my is, staff is, travel covers that. If, if they're serving that much beer, is this thing even going to get to Columbus before they divert because somebody's uh, going to kick off, yeah. misbehaving? Yeah, indeed. Or wing walking. I mean, or, uh, I mean, with a flight like that, I mean, the the the, the attendants would have to have a very relaxed view about uh, alcohol in the air, wouldn't they? I mean, I yeah. wouldn't I wouldn't fancy the job of being on that flight. Let's put it this way. No, not not working anyway. These will be well-behaved beer drinkers who obviously like good good beer good beer yeah although i, don't, I was thinking it says it's specially made for high altitude i'm not sure really what that means because i thought at higher altitude you can't taste so much mm, no, yeah but your yeah, taste that make it, makes it extra sort of extra not strong hoppy. but like more hoppy so that you mm. can taste more hoppy yeah. sorry my english is terrible this morning i've tried i've had i had actually a, a couple of christmases ago i, I got brought by a family member some brew dog 
um, stuff, and it was quite nice actually. To be fair, it is yeah. on the subject of beer. Yeah, uh, but moving any, on. Any excuse to mention <laughs> moving swiftly yeah, moving on, on to an aviation-related story. Did you not uh, bring story. any of them in for some? No, I'm yeah, sorry. we should have done. Should we? We, we didn't think this through for a sun, for, for a Sunday anyway. Uh, it's an update, uh, basically, on the uh, Lion Air crash. Uh, this is on the SBS dot com dot au website and the headline is Lion Air crash Indonesia finds faults with more Boeing planes so slightly worrying really Indonesia has identified faults in two other Boeing 737 MAX 8 jet planes Indonesia's transport ministry said Friday it found minor faults in two other Boeing 737 MAX 8 jets including a cockpit indicator display problem which an analyst said may be similar to the one reported in the Lion Air crash uh, the ministry is ex- inspecting 10 of the newly released jets owned by Lion and flagship carrier <laughs> is it uh, Garuda is it Garuda Garuda, uh, Garuda. and authorities analyse data from a recovered black box that may explain why flight JT610 plummeted to into the Java Sea killing 189 people on Monday uh, few details were released, but the ministry said it looked over half a dozen jets so far and discovered that one had a problem problem linked to its cockpit display, while another had a glitch in a jet stabilisation system. Both Lion Air owned planes required new components, it said. Aviation analyst uh, uh, Doobie said the cockpit display issue could include a speed and altitude glitch reported in the doomed jet with airplanes even if there is a single tiny fault it should not fly he added uh, Stephen Wright an aviation expert at the University of Leeds told AFP that the faults identified by the transport ministry were very minor he added that any problems with the new jets pilot static system which determines speed and altitude amongst other measurements will be key in to the probe the uh, inspection comes uh, as questions swirl around what a plane that uh, well, about why a plane that had gone into service just months ago crashed into the sea minutes after takeoff. The single R jet en route from Jakarta uh, is one of the world's newest and most advanced commercial passenger planes. Budget carrier Lion Air. It's admission that the doomed jet had a technical issue on a previous flight, as well as uh, its abrupt. Uh, fatal dive have raised questions about whether it had mechanical faults specific to the new model. Indonesia's National Transportation Safety Committee said it was interviewing people who flew on the plane the day before with the fatal crash. Some have reported a frightening erratic trip, an assertion that appears to be backed up by flight tracking data. Now, actually, I think Nev posted a picture didn't yeah, he, that he, did, he saw yeah. of, of the flight line i think line. it was in flight radar 24 wasn't yeah. it mm. and it where it shows you the the the, the glide path and, and how it was doing mm. and it was you got one that was like okay and then the one with the incident uh was i mean it, it was nowhere near the, the now that could just be the pilot perhaps i don't yeah. i don't know enough it's, about it but something's obviously clearly not to, right to to be fair it, it's it's getting into the wet season up there um, and the, these people who are reporting a frightening erratic trip, well, it, it, some of the things that have come out, um, somebody's shown a photo of a, of a tech log, which is allegedly from this aircraft and some of the faults that it had, Yeah. Um, which is, it's you know, it's like a new car. Sometimes you get one that's not, you know, it needs a few things done to it. But 
if if the pilots are flying it manually, it's going to feel nowhere near as smooth as the autopilot is anyway. Um, like pilots just aren't, you know, can't be that smooth. But I mean, uh, as as the computer, and when you've got the weather that's up there this time of year, um, there's you know. Didn't they say it was in Cavo K conditions? So. They're going around. Wasn't it in Cavo oh, K? that was the accident. That was the accident flight, but if this is the flight the day before, oh, and the if day, it was oh, in the yeah, afternoon, sorry, yeah. there's going to be build-ups and, yeah, and sure. that sort of thing out there, and you're going to be bouncing along anyway. Mm. Uh, because you're not on autopilot, it's just not going to be as smooth. Mm. Um, and, you know, I don't know who this aviation analyst is, but a single tiny fault, it shouldn't fly. Well, well the thing is, it can be a combination just, of these things, You've just grounded at 85% of the world's air, aircraft. Yeah. <laughs> have no yeah. fault could fly. Like, you yeah. know, the, the reading light in 10, in 10A is out, so we better not go. Right. Um, <laughs> it depends on the, on the size of the fault. I mean, obviously, there was something seriously wrong with this aircraft and whether, it, you know, we'll, we'll work out what happened eventually because they have the recorders. But, but the bit... Um, and, that will do the well, investigation. We hope so we're just looking on the news. Yeah, here I've got some. I've got some recorder. updates on um, the Aviation Herald website, Simon's awesome website, which uh, we all know and love. And uh, one of the, a couple of the updates, one of which is um, unfortunately one of the divers that was uh, recovering parts from the aircraft, unfortunately passed away oh. uh, due to possible decompression um, on the third of November. Uh, also, the, the the box they recovered um, from the crash was the data, the CSMU, the uh, Crash Survivable Memory Unit, the flight data recorder, um, which is the one that they recovered uh, this week. Um, so they're still trying to search for the uh, voice cockpit recorder, uh, which unfortunately the ping they've located, kind of roughly located where the ping could possibly be, but they're worried that it could be covered in... Uh, debris or, or um, mud from the bottom which may be kind of hampering the signal from the uh, pinging locator so hopefully they'll be able to um, to recover the uh, CVR. Yeah, yeah I, I mean so. the only thing that worries me a bit is in, in this story and as I say I'm the first one who, who I mean the, I'm the only one here who really knows nothing about what's going on but there's it worries me that a fault was reported you I I suppose the the nervous flyer in me wants to know how serious that fault was that was reported yesterday and like who okayed it to fly if it did have that fault I mean uh, yeah but as Grant just said there there's always yeah. countless faults you know you said yeah. reading light in 10A I mean every tech log in every yeah. aircraft has got okay. an endless list of um yeah, no, fair enough. yeah no, I mean <laughs> I, don't get me wrong I'm, I'm quite comfortable flying if one yeah. of the reading lights is out but it was just the I'll put it this way, Matt. Um, Indonesian aviation has not got the best safety record. Yes. There's a reason that there is, I think Garuda is the only airline that's allowed to fly in the EU. Right. And that's because they've had a massive tidy up. Okay. Um, these guys, they're Indonesian carrier. They're low cost. Um, they are expanding like you wouldn't believe. Like it's, yeah. it's just crazy. The amount of stuff that, like the amount of expansion that they've done. Yeah. But, um, there's, they've had some pretty high-profile incidents. Um, well, one was an accident. The Lion Air, oh, I think it was about three or four years ago, they put, uh, it was another six or seven-month-old uh, 737 yeah. that, that ended up in the water off the coast of Denpasar. Mm. Uh, luckily, in that, that one, everybody got out because they were literally at the beach. Um, but that was due to pilot error, right. basically, that one. Um, 
we've yeah, had a I think, couple I think of big said... incidents in Australia from two separate Indonesian carriers where they flew the departure procedure for a runway other than the one they took off on. Yeah. Um, which caused them to do really hard and unexpected turns and caught the departures controller by complete surprise. And they were like, where are you going? Um, in the latest one out of Melbourne, they turned uh, to what was the first waypoint off the other runway, uh, basically pointing them towards the biggest hill inside the whole terminal area. Uh, the, and the, 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 I mean, I, I say funny, it, it's not funny, it's serious, but um, the controller said, where are you going? To which the pilot replied, Indonesia. So, <laughs> okay. I mean, he, he, was, he wasn't wrong, but that's kind of not what we meant at the time. <laughs> no, and he probably should have known that, to be yeah. fair. I mean, sorry, you were going to say... Well, I was just going to say, yeah, I, I've actually spent a bit of time flying in Indo as well. And uh, yeah, they are absolutely shockingly hopeless, which is normally half the reason for these accidents. And I was just thinking that you said that Denpasar one. I think as well in that one, it was only three weeks later, they said, oh, actually, we did have one casualty. They found a body later that they didn't even have accounted. I, I believe. Really? Yeah. Oh my oh. goodness me! That, yeah. that is. But in in Indonesia, the, the civil aviation over there is in a very poor state, and okay. so that the aviation authority yeah. is just corrupt, basically. Right. Um, okay. You can buy a license in that country. Wow. But if that's the authority that's it... monitoring those companies, yeah. then you can imagine the, the situations within those companies. Yes, yeah. indeed. It's, it, the, I mean, it's... the company that I work for, Matt, um, and you know, to be clear, not that I'm speaking on behalf of my company because I'm not allowed to do that. No, but. We, we have a, um, what we call a, a transport safety assistance package, I believe it's called, where we spend quite a lot of money and uh, effort where we send our experts and subject matter experts and things like that to Indonesia to help them out, to help them bring their safety up to a standard, right. um, which is something that we started probably almost a decade ago now, purely because we're on the other side of the border from, yeah. from in airspace terms from Indonesia. Like we, we have borders with, with Ujung Center and, and with Jakarta Center. So we, we have to accept what they've set up for yeah. the controllers up north. Um, and if they're setting up things that are dangerous, that, that doesn't help us. No. So, uh, so we've, we've taken it up to, to help them out, no. um, to, to give them more technology and give them more safety and, and, and try and change the culture over there a, a, a small mm. part of me finds it rather worrying though that you're even having to consider doing something like that do you know what i mean i mean and as i appreciate you you're speaking personally rather than you know on behalf of but uh, i mean it it, it, it I, I must admit i'm sitting here reading i mean obviously the story is awful there's no two ways about it people have lost lives and, and all that kind of thing it's just i mean part of me is wondering you know if i was boeing i don't know if i want to 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 let them have one of my flagship aircraft uh, with with a company that's got such an awful safety record, you think? I mean, because you, I mean, you, as you say, like with any new car, you always get teething problems, don't you? I mean, bugs that have to be ironed out and things like that. I just can't help but feel like I would be more inclined to give it to a company with a better reputation while we work out the kinks. Mm. You, uh, am I speaking in a uh, perhaps? I'm, you're right, but the, the turn, money but Boeing, Boeing has, has representatives on this investigation and they will be very motivated, shall we say, to yeah. prove that it wasn't their aeroplane as much as they can if, yeah. if that was the case. Yeah. Um, but it's it's not limited to Indonesia. It's limited to... It, it's basically a, a thing of being a third world country. Right. Okay. That, um, if yeah. you talk to the likes of Captain Nick, 
like people that go and fly in Africa, there's a lot of stuff in Africa where you, you know, there's air traffic control, but there's not. Um, right. so there's a lot of Africa where, um, you know, the likes of Captain Nick and that are flying through and, and they're talking to each other. The pilots are talking to each other on the radio just to make sure the controllers haven't done anything wrong, um, which is just yeah. purely the, the state of the technology of a okay. third world country. And, you know, they're not getting paid anywhere near as well what as should be, yeah. first world countries and things like that. Um, there's a lot of government issues in those countries, you know, where, um, you know, like Stuart said, corruption and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot of things like that. And I mean, I, presume uh, I work got... with a few, few South Africans and the stories that they tell you of, you know, their neighbours to the north that they used to deal with. And you're like, it just doesn't make you feel very yeah, good. It makes you very nervous. I mean, because Stuart, you've got first-hand experience, obviously, in, in you know, sort of well, yeah, I was, in that airspace. I, so I saw the corruption. Like, I was over there for a, a job interview with uh, Susie Air, uh, and I was there, so I stayed there for a week and did a bit of flying over there in the caravan, landed on a beach, which was good fun. Nice. But, um, yeah, I also saw some uh, shocking behaviour, and really? I saw I saw some corruption, like physically, money Fi- being passed over to the wow. uh, CAA front there, <laughs> and there was uh, 10 pilots in the back who all got out, and as they got out, they were each given their licences and signed off. It was just a revalidation. But it was just ridiculous that no one even touched the controls. They all got off, and wow. these aviation authority guys just uh, paid them. Yeah. Oh, that, I must admit, like it doesn't make me, as a nervous flyer, <laughs> sit here feel particularly comfortable. But that, but that company was a good company, and they yeah. run with Western intentions. But yeah. they were dealing with the Indonesian authorities. Right, I see. Um, but okay. the, the training and everything and it was very good. It's normally, as you said, it's the Indonesians and the air traffic control in Indonesia that causes a lot of accidents as well. Wow. Um, and yeah. on a light okay, note, moving on to uh, <laughs> to the next story, Stuart. This is a uh, bit of bad news for those of you who like a few uh, beers before you fly. Is it, but it hasn't happened yet, has it? Okay, no, not yet. This is in the New York Times. Uh, last call at the airport. <gasps> Britain oh. considers end to twenty-four hour bar service. Oh, this is disaster for it me. Is. It's the Lute- only time I ever have a beer at six o'clock in the morning <laughs> is in the airport. <laughs> Luton, England. It was 5.50 yeah. on a Friday morning and most of the people at Starbucks in the middle of a shopping concourse at Luton Airport, north of London, looked slightly miserable, as if they preferred to be somewhere else. A man in a green hoodie sat with his chin propped on his hand, staring at a departure board. A young couple next to him looked at their phones, ignoring each other. Nothing new there. Yeah. There was little conversation <laughs> and no laughter. A few... Feet away, though, at the Smithfield pub, established 2017, which was designed <laughs> to look like a wood cabin, the mood was more festive. A couple were drinking strawberry-flavoured cider to celebrate the start of a romantic trip to Paris. A woman was ordering gin and tonics and pints of Guinness for her friends, while swaying to music at the bar. Two men heading to Alicante, Spain, for a cricketing tour were laughing while drinking lager. We're wearing yellow chinos. We need to feel this. We need this to feel better," said Joylon <laughs> Bryce, one of the men. For many, early drinking is a tradition at Britain's airports, but it could soon become a thing of the past. On Thursday, the British government announced that it would review airport licensing rules in England and Wales after complaints from budget airlines like Ryanair, EasyJet, and Jet2.com about drunk and disorderly passengers. At London Stansted Airport this summer, for example, a groom dressed as the Disney character Tinkerbell <laughs> was accused the groom, sorry, not the feet, not the bride, yeah. <laughs> as Tinkerbell yeah. was accused of threatening other passengers on a Ryanair flight to crack off Poland, delaying the plane. He had to be escorted off. Such antics are a menace, causing stress, spurring physical altercations, 
and I've just lost my phone because I don't know how to use your computer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the mouse. Yeah, that There's a help. mouse there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, said in the Ryanair said it's completely unfair that airports can profit from the unlimited sale of alcohol to passengers and leave the airlines to deal with the safety consequences. Outside of airports, most local authorities limit the number of places that can sell alcohol around the clock, and the usual closing time for bars and pubs is between 11pm and 1am. But bars at international airports are exempt from Britain's licensing, licensing rules. One can generally get a drink at any hour. The Home Office is seeking public comments on whether the stricter licensing rules should apply to airports too. The government has suggested banning alcohol sales at airports from 4 till 8. Um, British newspapers express shock at the news. The party's over. Brit holiday makers <laughs> should be banned from 24-hour boozing. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 this is the same old story, isn't it? It's the minority spoiling it for the majority again. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I mean, I'm literally just having a pint of cider just because it's quirky to be able to have one at six o'clock in the morning. Do you know what I mean? It's. Uh, yeah. I think I, 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 I get where the low-cost airlines are coming from. A small part of me can't help but feel it's sour grapes because they're not the ones making the money on the on said drinking, but. Uh, I, I get where they're coming from, obviously, because it has been rapidly become a problem, hasn't it? I mean, and it's all of them, isn't it? It's Jet Two, it's Ryanair, it's EasyJet. They're all experiencing problems with, with, with that. The, the problem too, Matt, is 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 the low cost carrier is where you go if you're having the big weekend, you know, yeah. the, the blokes weekend or the the stag, stag do, do or yeah. you know, or the hen, the hens do. Look, you know, the girls are just as bad as the guys when it comes to this sort of thing. Um, and the, the problem that you you have is you know that these aren't going to be the people that are going to go um, you know like in this part of the world they're not going to go Qantas business class or anything no. like that uh, uh, they, they're going to be on Jetstar or Tiger or what have mm. you and I mean when I was the ground crew it actually used to be the best part of my day where you you got the thumbs up from the cabin crew to close the door and you were kind of like well good luck with that yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> bye now but, but that, you know, the, 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 the poor, poor folks are stuck with them for the next three hours as yeah. they go across the Tasman. And, and unfortunately, unlike a bar, which, you know, I've, I've done that too when I was, you know, out of high school and went worked behind a bar like a lot of people do. But when you're in a bar, you can get the security guard and you can go, he's out mm. um, and, and kick them out. Whereas if you're at 37,000 feet, you don't have that option. You have to deal with what you have. Yeah. Uh, and it tends to cause uh, you know pilots are making the the rational decisions where they're well, well we can't deal with this up here we need to divert yeah. um i've i've had one on a night shift in where you know adelaide's closed at night it's got a curfew but we had an, air, an aircraft that actually declared an emergency so we're, we're coming into adelaide to get rid of this passenger um yeah it came out in the press the next day that well I don't know whether it was alcohol, whether it was drugs. Like she was saying a lot of things that you can't say on an aeroplane these days. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she was going to blow the aeroplane up and all sorts of things. But, um, you know, and it, that that would have cost them an absolute fortune to divert this aircraft yeah. into a, an airport, land. They were on the ground for an hour or so, and then they still had to go to Perth. Yeah. Uh, and then come back. Delays those transcon flights at night are, gen are generally return flights. Yeah, it is. It, it, is, it, so is it twenty-four hour drinking in Australia then? <coughs> the airports, or is it food uh, as well? It possibly is. I've not worked at the airports of those kind yeah. of. You know, if I'm working at the airports those kind of hours, I'm normally out working on. The, I was working on the freighters when I was on the ground crew, and now 
um, in our building where we're not even yeah. um, we're not even on the same side of the airport. We're actually on the opposite side of the airport from terminal. Um, of course, not not that we're allowed to drink when we're working anyway. No, no, no. As you would imagine. No. So, I was just going to say when I've spoken yeah, to other it's... pilots about this, I don't know from a ramp point of view. Then um, Ben, um, when I spoke to other pilots, we've always thought, well, the thing is, it's a race of race to the bottom as usual. They've cut corners and cut costs on the ground, so there isn't as many ramp agents or people at the check-in desk who can then monitor them, see if they're drunk. At the bar, same thing. There should be people saying, "No, you've had too many, not yeah. serving you." And there should be more people at the check-in desk going, are you sure you're fine to travel? Instead of leaving it to when they get on board and then we have to kick them off. I mean, I've been on flights with kick people off really? um, before we get going. Because we, we, if our cabin crew don't like them, we'll just yeah. follow what our cabin crew says. Well, because the cabin crew are the ones who are sent you. Because once you're in the air, I mean, obviously they're the ones who've got to deal with it. I mean, you you obviously have more important things to worry about, essentially. Yeah. But then, uh, I, mean, I, I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, obviously I've done my fair share of working behind the bar. Yeah. And... I must be, I, I don't know, I, I don't know if it's going to be particularly easy. It's, people are very good at fooling you as to how drunk they are, do you know what I mean? Because so, obviously the policy here in the UK, even in an ordinary bar, is if you look like you're really drunk, you are not allowed to serve them. But it defi I, get, I guess it's finding the line of what's considered too drunk. Yeah. to make that decision to then deny them further service do you know what I mean and, and it, I don't know and I mean this in the nicest possible way but I don't suppose the staff at Weatherspoons in, in Luton or wherever are paid very much money uh, probably just above minimum wage if, if at all in the airports because I know the rules well, are a bit if funny. they're selling this is what I'm saying it's their responsibility they're the ones on Agreed. the ground who are profiting from it so they're yeah. the ones who should be more responsible they should have better training for the staff yeah. they should monitor it like if someone's been there for more than two drinks hang on do we serve them the third one because they're getting on an aeroplane. So, yeah, well, maybe that's the answer then is to yeah. actually... Sort of... and, and it has a lot more effect at altitude too. Yeah. Um, and do you, do you have the issue over there, Matt? We're, we're, uh, it's, a, it's sort of been a, bit, a big thing here where they're, they're cracking down on it more for um, concerts and events and things like that where people will, um, they call it preloading. So, yes. so oh, basically yeah. they, they, they all go, you know, get half drunk at home. Uh, and then go out and then have even more when they're there. And the problem for the cabin crew is that they're fine when they have the first one, yeah. but then they have one and then it's, you know, we've, we've had a, it was a, it made the news here about three years ago where a, a Jetstar flight to Thailand, I think it was going to Phuket, ended up in, in Denpasar, uh, only because Jetstar also operates there, mm. uh, where they kick six six guys off the aircraft because they were having a punch on at 38,000 feet. Yeah, yeah. Richard Bell's saying they call it pre-gaming, where he's pre -gaming. <laughs> getting ready. <laughs> it's that same sort of thing, isn't it? But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's a story that we'll, we'll come back to again, I have no doubt, because it, yeah. it is an ongoing problem. I mean, I don't know what the solution is. I just think it's very unfair for the likes and, and I mean this I mean this selfishly for the likes of myself where and, and and I dare say every single person who's listening to the show you know they they wouldn't dream of of getting absolutely hammered to get on an airplane to go out there and it seems really unfair to 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 then end up heavily regulating against the majority uh because of the minority but I guess that is the world in which we live isn't it so uh, yeah. uh we should move on probably you borrow my hip flask when you go on holiday next oh week. brilliant thank you mate no notes <laughs> I hope it's under 100 mil yeah, yeah. 100 mil yeah Absolutely. So uh, the next story, uh, Ben, uh, it's uh, on BBC News. And, uh, yeah, be careful with this one. Don't damage it. We're, we're, we're still talking about Luton Airport, actually. Yeah. And, 
as as much as I used to call myself a bag chucker, I didn't actually mean it literally. So, <laughs> two two baggage handlers at Luton Airport are under investigation after a passenger filmed them throwing baggage coming from a plane's hold. No surprise, <laughs> you're on camera everywhere these days. Yeah. I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, the footage uploaded on social media by Rob Button, don't know why we needed his name, uh, is believed to have come following a Wizz Air flight from, is that Poznan? I, yeah. Not Polish, so apologies, mm. in Poland. Azura, an Italian company which is contracted by Wizz Air for the baggage handling, has apologised. The firm said that the company would deal with the matter internally, uh, reading between the lines, that's probably by firing the pair uh, <laughs> that were involved. Uh, BBC's contacted Wizz Air and Mr Button and Luton Airport said it wasn't us, we're not responsible. Um, the, Mr Button told the Metro, I could see them throwing the bags without any care for anyone's belongings. It's a disregard that they had that bothered me. I filmed them for a while and it was clearly how they just unload the luggage. Azura's UK station coordinator, Gennaro Casa, oh God, I'm Italian, I can't even pronounce that. Casa <laughs> said, it continuously, they continuously strive to meet customer and stakeholder expectations and they apologise on behalf of the company that in this, in this instance, those expectations have not been met. The individual employees identified in the footage are now under investigation and the matter will be dealt with via internal company procedures. Yeah, or a dolly good Luton firing, Airport. yes. <laughs> yes, a Luton Airport spokesman said, we expect all third parties operating at London Luton Airport to uphold our high standards. Where this is not the case, we work with our airline partners and their ground handling agents to take any appropriate action. Now, I, when I was working for you know, Acme Blue, it was you knew that you had a thousand eyes on you at any point in time. Uh, unless you were inside the aircraft or inside the baggage uh, area, you, you had people watching you all the time. Yeah, Big Brother's um, always and, watching. Yeah, and in, yeah. well, inside a 737, you literally can't throw an air, a bag anyway because there's not enough room. But, you know, they, these guys just look like they're casually throwing the bags. Now, to the casual person, it may seem that sometimes what baggage handlers are doing is throwing the bags, but... It's because the bag literally has to get airborne between the 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 baggage belt and the actual um, and the the baggage cart. But normally, the actual the landing is is nothing because it's very um, you know you you basically you're only transferring that that small distance, uh, and you're trying to just keep keep the weight off your back and save your back. But this picture that's on on this article, uh, it. The guy's clearly just thrown the bag because it's well airborne. Um, and it actually yeah. reminds me of a thing I saw about 20 years ago where there was a, um, a certain American carrier, and there will be no surprises to who it was, <laughs> uh, where they obviously couldn't find the baggage belt to unload this 757 or 767. I can't remember which one it was. The hold on that aircraft is about 12, 15 feet off the ground if not more. And these bags were coming straight out of the hole onto the ground. So, yeah, and it's just one of those things, especially, you know, that was in 96, so there wasn't such a thing as a smartphone camera, but these days you just, you can't get away with it. I no. mean, you have a look at the whole no. furor that happened with United Brakes guitars. 
but <laughs> but they must know that. I mean, as you say, I mean, we live in a world where everything is high. You know, the, the surveillance is everywhere. I mean, they must know that the risk of them being filmed doing something like that. You'd have thought that your own self-regulation think oh i better not do that because somebody's probably watching me out of the air because we're all staring out of the airplane windows while they're sort of nosing what you're know, watching them refuel and doing all these bits. i mean like, just like yeah but they get rush itis they got told i've got five more planes to unload or reload and okay. then there's yeah. all yeah we're running late the usual yeah. Yeah. yeah, but they get skilled at throwing. That's why I said play, yeah, play that video. <laughs> yeah. They get they get really skilled at it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very good at flipping a cone, as it were. Indeed, that's not a euphemism. Uh, or maybe they were just at the Weatherspoons. They might have been. Yeah, yeah they, they just finished shift. Yeah. <laughs> so moving on to the next story. This one is on the bizjournals.com website. And uh, for those of you who uh, obviously uh, all we all know and love the 737, and uh, this is actually about 737s that are being uh, completion work, which is being done not in the US, um, but Boeing uh, to start 737 completion work in China in oh, wow. December. So many of the Boeing company 737 fuselages built by Wichita by Spirit Aerosystems Incorporated will soon have a longer journey from the air capital to be finished out for their eventual airline customers. According to a report from Reuters, Boeing expects to be operating out of its new 737 completion center in Zhaoshan in China next month. It's also expected that the facility will make its first delivery to a customer, which will be Air China, by the end of the year. Boeing aims to eventually complete and deliver 100 of the 737 uh, narrow-body jets per year uh, from the uh, completion center. That would represent about 15% of the total number of 737s built. And, uh, well, it says here that the fuselages and other 737 components built by Spirit for those aircraft will still be transported by rail from Wichita to Boeing's final assembly line in Renton, Washington. Those single-aisle jets will be flown uh, following assembly to the Soshan Center, where Boeing and state-owned COMAC, or Commercial Aircraft Corporation of China, will finish interiors, paint exteriors, and put other finishing touches to the aircraft before delivery to Chinese airlines. Spirit, which is Wichita's largest employer, builds around 70% of every 737 that Boeing delivers. Around a third of all Boeing 737 sales are to Chinese airlines. So it's um, obviously we all, you know, most people tend to think that the um, the Boeing products coming from the US all the time, yeah. but it just proves that along with Airbus, because Airbus is the same, whereas, you know, majority of the Airbuses are obviously built and assembled Did in Toulouse, but they bits come from the UK yeah. and all around Europe. Didn't, didn't, I, didn't we read an article last week or the week before where Boeing, Boeing were put, putting, despite Brexit, uh, that there was talk of a, a, a Boeing centre being built here as well? Yeah, mm. it's their first uh, manufacturing site outside of Europe. It's yeah. in the UK, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which, is, which would be quite cool. It's good news because it's, <laughs> it's an incredibly, I mean, obviously they are uh, an incredibly popular jet and, yeah. um, you know, the, the Chinese market is huge. I you bet, know, there's, yeah. there's so many, you know, there's so much air traffic in China. The only thing is I've had Chinese motorbikes before not the one, oh, that's the one I crashed on not the one you crashed <laughs> no, on no 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 but uh, the quality and the materials of it was not good and I do worry down the oh. production line yeah. that's my only concern but, uh, well, Airbus has had a factory in China for a while now but there's part of me that wonders 
how long before the next Kovac jet looks awfully like a 737? <laughs> their 999 yeah. looks awfully like an A321. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah. there is that struggle, I suppose. I mean, I must admit, I, I, see, I, I had a little Chinese scooter, and it to be yeah, fair, it was done by a little company. Yeah. It was, it was sort of sold here in the UK by a company called Direct Bikes, and I have to say, it was a brilliant, brilliant scooter until literally two weeks mm. after my three years were up, and it literally stopped working. It was like. Like, they have so, built-in timers, man. Yeah, I swear yeah. it's got a timer. It was like literally two weeks after that, you know, I've managed to get an MOT on it and everything, and then literally two weeks later, it would not start. It didn't yeah. matter what you did to it, it would not start. I tried new spark plugs, it was practically rebuilt. It would not start. Yeah, it's just one of those things. Is, let's hope they don't have a similar problem with Boeing then, I suppose. Mm. But anyway, we'll move on to the next story. Yeah. This is on the Russ Tourism News website, and it's a story involving Qantas. And, ex- and they're going to be expanding their discounted fare program. So Qantas has today announced an expansion of its discounted fares program giving residents living okay it's alright so I had a a thing pop up telling me to subscribe (laughs) Uh, so uh, is an expansion of its discounted fares program giving residents uh, living in regional Australia access to more affordable air travel. So the program was introduced last November as a 12 month trial in selected regional cities where residents compete with a very high proportion of corporate travel specifically with uh, from uh, resources uh, specifically from the resources industry residents can access discounts of at least 20% and up to 30% off return fares for travel from their local airport to the nearest capital city or major town. Discounts are available for personal travel to individuals who reside in the following regional ports. So we've got... Um, uh, do, you, do you want me to pronounce how? Yeah, we better, better, we better, better let mind, Ben I'd do be this. very grateful. Uh, how do you say Kalgoorlie? <laughs> That, they're very good. That is that's that's yeah. right. So broom, um, broom, this right this is this this came up in my part of the world when I used to live in Karratha, which is number three on the list, um, because it is horrendously expensive to go anywhere. Right. Uh, when you live in regional travel is more expensive anyway, purely because um, and this I had to explain to people who didn't know much about aviation when I was in Karratha till I was blue in the face. However, um, because you've got a regional area, there's not as much service anyway. Um, there's not enough load. They don't have the cargo and things like yeah. that to offset it as per normal. Uh, this is a thing because it became, it actually went into the Senate uh, over here where they had a big inquiry about why is regional travel so expensive? Uh, especially NWA, it got a little bit out of hand when the mining boom uh, kicked in uh, because you had companies like uh, BHP, Rio Tinto, um, Fortescue Metals. I'm picking on all the mining companies in WA. Uh, sorry, guys, but that's the ones I know. Um, where they had the, these issues where they were buying basically three quarters of the aeroplane for their staff. Right. Um, they're making millions of dollars a day. If they have to pay $1,500 to get on the aeroplane, they don't care. Yeah. It's part of the business. Um, but, like, for an example, I, I was looking at doing a day trip to Perth when the Antonov, the really big one, the 225, came into Perth for the day. It was going to cost me about $1,200 really? to, to, to go there for the day. Um, and most of that was the last flight out because there was only one of the two carriers that actually does that flight. 
mm. um, the one with the kangaroo on its back. Uh, and Qantas, basically the last flight into Karatha at night, has no competition. They charge what they what please. What they like, yeah. Aren't any of those regional routes uh, like subsidised by the government in any way, though, to help the regional airports uh, and such? That's more the really small ones. So that when they're talking about like Saab 340s and that sort of size aircraft, like okay. a 30, 40 seat aircraft, that's where they subsidise it, not on the jet routes so much. No. Um, these towns, uh, sorry, to go back to the original thing and get off my high horse. Uh, <laughs> in Western Australia, uh, it's return travel to Perth because, of course, you have to do everything in and out of Perth in WA, basically. Okay. Uh, which is so uh, from Broome. Uh, which is a surprising one because Broome has a lot of tourism uh, rather than uh, just normal uh, regional travel. Uh, Kalgoorlie, which is a big gold mine. Karatha, which is where I used to live, yay. Uh, <laughs> Parabadoo, Port Hedland, Newman. And in Queensland, uh, this is in and out of Brisbane, uh, which is uh, Mount Isa, Cloncurry, uh, which uh, is also includes Townsville because I believe they have to go in and out of Townsville to go to Mount Isa and Cloncurry. Uh, Murrumbah, Longreach, Blackall, and Barkaldine. So they're, so they're all pronouncing all of those areas. I, I, I suppose, I, I, I guess it's a bit similar here. We tried to see something similar here, isn't it? Where you go from Norwich to Schiphol, and then you can go Schiphol anywhere else in the world. I guess, I guess it's a, a similar sort of idea, sort of there. So, you know, you're using these regional airports, you know, Broome, etc., into Perth, and then Perth onto wherever you want to go after that. Is, yeah. is that essentially the model that they're, they're sort of discounting so in, in wa you basically there is only one international airport in the whole state um right. now if you've ever looked at a map that actually has the state boundaries on it western australia is basically the western third of the entire country okay. is one state um but perth is the only capital city it's actually i believe the world's most remote capital city or it's got some kind of fame like that yeah. but if you want to go anywhere other than western australia you almost have to go through Perth. Now, Port Hedland, which is on that list, they have, well, had, I don't know if it's still there, but when I was working up in that part of the world, they had a once-a-week flight to Bali. Um, but that was it. Everything else you had to go via Perth to go anywhere, right. be that the East Coast. Um, Broome's a little bit of an exception. Uh, Broome's very popular with uh, tourism, so uh, that sort of tends to be a bit of a sun destination. Uh, where they've got a lot of pearling and things like that up there. So people tend to go up there for, for a holiday. Uh, so that gets a bit more East Coast flights. So you can get out of Broome to go to, say, Brisbane and um, and Melbourne and places like that. But uh, a lot yeah. of those other towns in WA, you, you have to go to Perth to go anywhere else. Uh, yeah. you know, for example, when I used to work in, in Karatha to get back home to see uh, the rel relatives back here, in Melbourne, it uh, took me the best part of a day because you have to fly two hours or two hours, 20 minutes yeah. south to Perth and then four hours across the bottom of the, the country. See, I mean, we, we whinge here in the UK about being, you know, a long way away from any kind of major arterial road and or <laughs> um, like an airport. But of course, in reality, of course, it's in nothing in comparison to what it is in Australia in the fact that, you know, it's like two and a half hours, you know, three hours to Heathrow from here, which to us little brits just seem feels like an eternity but if, but you know i mean I, if you, you guys... if you live in northern wa that's up the street yeah, um, yeah. I, I i used to live in karatha we also staffed um 
a place called Port Hedland, which is 240 kilometers up the road. Yeah. So you would drive up there for a two, three day trip to cover their leave because um, they wanted to go on holiday somewhere. And yeah, it, it'd take you two and a half hours to drive up there. But that was basically the next town up the road wow. from from out that part of the world. That's um, to give you an idea, Matt, I, I drove the coast road, well, effectively the coast road home. It took me 8,400 kilometres to go from Karate back to Melbourne. Wow! Now, um, now you can see I was, why I was taking my sweet time, so it took yeah, me right. <laughs> but now, you, now you can see why I, I have I've been way. to visit my cousin in Australia, yeah. in Western Australia, because she, um, she lives in Geraldton. Ben? Oh, yep, that's yeah. the most part of the world. Yeah. yeah, and and she keeps you know because they're back in the UK at the minute, but um, they're going back in back to Geraldton next year. Um, but you can see now why I haven't. I'm yet to go and yeah, visit them. Yeah, to go out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because yeah, <laughs> even she tells me what a nightmare it is to get to, to, to their home because they're right on the um, yeah. right near the beach where they are. So essentially, us Brits need to stop complaining. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just, we do have a lot more traffic though, so it's stressful. Well, yeah, it's I not just a straight road. <laughs> no, there is that. Uh, shall we move on? So Stuart, the next story is on okay. CNN. Yeah. CNNTravel.com. Yeah. So this is business traveller totally new jet liner unveiled for US flyers. For some folks, flying on a brand new airliner is almost as exciting as riding in a spanking new car. <laughs> so get ready air travel fans. Beginning in January, travelers in the US of A will get to fly on the first newly designed large single aisle airliner in nearly three decades. Delta Airlines, the world's second largest carrier, unveiled its new Airbus A220-100, that's the Bombardier CS series as it should be called, during a <laughs> ceremony Monday at its headquarters at Hardsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport. With the roar of jet engines in the background, excited employees lined up to tour Ship 8101, as Delta named it, the first of 75 A220s that Delta is expected to bring into its fleet over the next two to three years. Swiss, Korean Air and Air Baltic already fly these jets, but Delta will be the first carrier in the US. Taking the stage at the celebration, Delta CEO Ed Bastian welcomed the A220 as a beautiful new member of the family. <laughs> this $81 million jet has racked up several firsts. It's the first Airbus airliner designed and built by another company, Canada's Bombardier. Yeah, lovely wing on it. It's the first single-aisle airliner to have super-strong, lightweight, non-metal wings made with a spo well, sorry, special process called resin transfer injection, which is squirting carbon fiber resin inside the wing skin. This matters because carbon fiber wings have fewer rivets than metal wings. They slip through the air more smoothly and they need less maintenance. It's also the first single-aisle commercial airliner with electric brakes. I didn't know that. Instead of typical hydraulic brakes. Hmm. No more leaky hydraulic brake lines equals less maintenance. Less messy as well. Oh, yeah. Delta plans to use... That's it, use the mouse wheel. Delta plans to uh, use... It doesn't work. There you go. That's why I never use the touchpad. Always use a mouse, guys and girls. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we get we get the gist of the story basically there. That it's it's. I mean, it's exciting. Well, of course, we saw the the A two twenty, didn't we, at um, uh, Farnborough? Yeah, yeah, which was a a real a real treat. It's a great uh, it's uh, a great thing. As Actually, you say, they're that? being built by Bombardier as about well. the seats, Stu, on that story. Yeah, sorry. 
when I finally got this mouse to work. Yeah. <laughs> I was, was just covering it, it's fine. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, the seats. Uh, once you step aboard this plane, you immediately notice it just feels bigger than a typical single aisle airliner. Nearly seven foot high ceilings and windows larger than many other kinds of jets. Hmm. The cabin is a spacious ten foot seven inches wide. Delta has designed its A220-100s to seat 109 passengers, uh, including 12 in first class, 15 in premium, and uh, so they're adjustable, got water bottle holders. Uh, and then in economy, travellers may like the seat width, uh, measuring 18.6 inches. The widest main cabin seats in Delta's fleet. I think wow. even you and me, Matt, would be comfortable. Yeah, we might be comfortable. <laughs> yeah, that'll make a change. Yeah. And if you're wondering about the leg room in, e in the coach, the seat pitch ranges from 30 to 32 inches. And Delta Boeing 717s, which seat about the same number of passengers, have a seat pitch of 31 inches in economy. And it's also a, a roomier cabin with the two free seat configuration, so it means fewer middle seats, uh, which is great news if you're feeling... If you hate that trapped feeling. Yeah. And uh, if you're in the window seat, you've got more shoulder room thanks to cleverly designed indentations in the cabin walls for the window shades. Uh, this plane went old school. No push button electric dimmers required, just your typical pull down window shades, and they'll do fine. Uh, Delta A220 also offers the full LED spectrum lighting so crew members can change the colour and brightness of the interior light based on various moods throughout the day. In-flight entertainment, well, I think this will just vary for the operators, and that's, in this case it's an LCD for yeah. Delta with a 2K vision and Wi-Fi. Uh, restrooms, oh, they've got a window in the restroom. Yeah. Travelling with small children as well, pretty common, so it's nice to see airliner restrooms are getting more family-friendly. Mm. The lavatories yeah. on this plane are large enough to change babies ooh, and pull out a baby changing table. Yeah, there was, yeah the, the video we played while you were talking, quite there, good. It, it covered sort of all stuff like that, where it, where it got... Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, especially the window. I don't know why that sound, that feels. I, I really like the idea of having a. You know, if you <laughs> shall we say it's of a certain time, first thing in the morning. Uh, it's been a long <laughs> flight, and uh, you know, it's nice to have something to admire rather than than yourself in the mirror. That's, that, that always, I always hate that if you are using said restroom and all you can do is see yourself, and it's just like I, I don't want to see myself. <laughs> a window in the toilet you, you, is quite you nice. You do hope it has touch. a window blind so that if you have to use it on the ground, you're right. um, <laughs> not putting on a show for the people in the A380 next door. Well, there, there might be some people going for show do, uh, doing the Mile High Club or something. In oh, there okay. Well. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay. There's uh, some stuff about the routes here. I'll skip that. But there's a little bit here. A220's weird history. So for many aviation enthusiasts, the weirdest thing about the A220 is the fact that for the first time in Airbus's nearly half-century-long history, it's selling a plane designed and built by another company. I think we all know how this happened. Um, <laughs> before that plane, its larger version and actually had different names, the CS100, CS300, and Airbus simply renamed them. A truly shocking moment, said Abu Falaleh. You can't write this stuff in a novel. No one would believe it. Experts say Barbambia was driven to make the deal because they feared the Trump administration's trade policies with Canada would sink the company. Yeah, yeah I, I must admit, I'm looking at the pictures on here that Matt was putting up on the screen while we, while Stuart was reading the story there. It 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 looks roomy. It looks it does, very nice. Does, I mean, I know that obviously the cabin interior seats will probably change between airlines, but I think the Delta um, interiors here, which are on the story here, the seats look comfortable for a start. They look wide. Um, and also, like the cabin does, just come across as being quite roomy, spacious. Yeah, yeah. and with good. those windows, all that light, it's lovely. Yeah, it's very yeah. good. Well, this, this would this would be based on the original Bombardier um, configuration. So, part of me wonders how long until the Airbus space gurus get in there and work out. 
how to put the uh, the ultra tiny lav and the ultra tiny seats and yes yeah, get another you know two yeah. rows yeah. in the aeroplane yeah mm. and the bean counters ruin it for everybody yeah. So for the moment, we can enjoy the fact that they built an aircraft that, that as as you say, uh, myself and uh, Stuart would feel much more comfortable in. Mm. Perhaps <laughs> for, for any of our even our US listeners of the show, perhaps uh, if any of you guys get to the chance to uh, to fly on this uh, jet the with Delta. Give us an email, chuck us an email, or send us a quick report. That'd be nice to hear what you, uh, what you think as a passenger yeah. uh, on board this uh, the A220. So, yeah, get in contact with the show. Indeed. So, Ben, the last story then on the, what's this, on the InsideEVS.com, Inside yeah. Sorry, before we go to that, I, there is part of me that is disappointed that they've renamed it because now Matt oh. can't say... Bombardier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Bombardier. Yes, there we are. It's uh, it's a nice beer, by the way. It is, uh, it is yeah, nice beer. Actually. Yeah. Anyway, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Uh, Sorry. Anyway, uh, Inside EVs uh, is where this comes from. Uh, EasyJet says an electric nine-seat jet will hit the skies next year. Hmm. They're going to make much money with only nine seats on the aircraft. Uh, the maiden flight of the nine-seater is expected in 2019. Budget British airline EasyJet, which engaged in the Los Angeles-based Wright Electric startup, reports progress on the development of an all-electric airliner. Um, with the very simple statement, progress has been made. Uh, according to Flight Global's article, next year Wright Electric will be able to perform the first flight of a nine-seat electric aircraft. There are a few details on the project, but EasyJet hopes for a 500-kilometer or 310-mile range and dreams to establish the first electric flyway between London and Amsterdam. The aircraft is to be designed by Daryl Cummings, a former Boeing and US Department of Defense employee. There are also some enigmatic mentions of the new novel motor, but regardless of motors, we hope the required battery progress is already in place to take the project seriously. The ultimate goal is to develop a 150-seat all-electric aeroplane with a 300-mile or 500-kilometer range. On Bright Electric's Twitter, we found the company forwarded solid-state battery news, which is probably where the battery hopes are directed. Mm. Uh, and that is all they have to say about that at the minute. But a nine-seater is... I, they've got the pretty picture there that Matt showed with the, uh, the aircraft. Yeah. I, I, that's I obviously mean, going to be the, looks, the, the bigger it, one. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of windows for nine seats. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, I don't know. I I, I kind of I, I, I don't know. Electric jets. Yeah, I, I like I know, the idea. Just... I like the idea, but my my worry is that they haven't really mastered cars yet, mm. and I'd rather they got that right first before they start. Cause I, I, I presumably the same problem is all about the battery life and uh, and the weight of the batteries and things like that. I mean, really, uh, you know, perhaps they should be investing in other forms of transport and getting that so that everybody wants an electric car perhaps before they start yeah i mean it is in theory the greener the greenest way to go but if they can just solve the battery issue because ironically the making the battery of the cars thing is, the, is the killer yeah the whole thing um like and this is what's going to really limit it with long-haul aircraft because you look at the 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 really serious ultra long haul stuff like you know Qantas going uh, out to to uh, London from Perth now, 
mm. uh, being in the air for 19 odd hours. Non-stop. Yeah. They're burning upwards of 100 tonnes of fuel. Like the aeroplane is literally mm. getting lighter as it goes and that's part of its efficiency because it mm. keeps climbing as, as it goes through the, the night and goes across. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you've got a battery powered aeroplane, it doesn't get any lighter. It just runs out of power. Yeah. Mm. I think I think the future will be probably a more hybrid where it'll have a jet engine and the battery, and yeah. it'll be a combination of making the two efficient, or a, a, some kind of turbine, a bit yeah. like they do with the hybrid, where there's a, some kind of turbine or something that's generating uh, electricity to top up the battery, like they do with some of the hybrid cars, don't they? Yeah. So it's got a, you know, you have a, I think, was it Tesla? I think we're doing one similar where it was a, a very high-powered sort of sp sports car, but it had like a tiny little equivalent of a 500 cc engine that was basically just a generator. Yeah. You know keeping the batteries topped up i mean maybe that's uh, you i was know. just going to say the story isn't unrealistic in the fact when it says nine seaters but i mean at the moment easyjet do have a little fleet of king airs that they fly around to do pet spare parts and send engineers to okay. uh, broke down aircraft so it wouldn't surprise me if they do get some of these just to and they'll need engineers on board to keep them running yeah but if they use them as their little uh, fleet repositioners it might be possible yeah, absolutely so it's not unrealistic certainly while trialing it and, 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 and I mean, uh, you know, I think the, the the electricity is the way is the is the future. I think, but I uh, just maybe not yet. That's the bit that I'm worried about. It's I say they just haven't got the technology for the batteries. That's that's yeah. the thing. It's like you can make a really efficient car. You can make the actual car being very carbon friendly and, mm. and all that kind of thing, and then it all goes out the window the min the minute you start doing batteries because the resources required from Mother Nature essentially to generate that battery are just awful and the power you know so you know they really do need to solve that bit i think really don't they and obviously you know governments and and, and tesla and all sorts of people are busy working on that problem i know but uh, you know maybe they need to start solve that first before they start doing you know mm. battery powered it's, aircraft does 310 miles actually get you a lot of city pairs in europe not bad or... for us yeah yeah i mean mm. i could i could uh, just because like 500 kilometers is you know that's not that's much maybe to you. Three, yeah. that's your three, three routes <laughs> supermarket <laughs> you know, journey you wouldn't you wouldn't really get very far with that no. yeah. although I mean, one could argue with the strength of the sun perhaps in australia perhaps if they mastered <laughs> the solar panel technology that would be less of an issue but uh you know oh like, yeah, yeah. Solar, solar panels were solved yeah yeah, yeah we'll absolutely. Be fine if you, you're if fine you solar power it yeah, we'll be done. yeah, you'll be absolutely fine. You just can't drive it at night, but hey. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think if that 300 miles includes the reserve, that's probably usable for um, just the city hopping. Yeah. Um, but not that many of these yeah. jets routes. No, mm. no, indeed. Well, well watch this space. This is an interesting story, and uh, as I say, it's exciting. I I think because I do think that you know electricity is the way forward. But uh, yeah, say so maybe not just yet. <laughs> So that is where we're going to bring the commercial news segment of the show to a close. So coming up next, we have got a really, really good segment that uh, was done by Captain Al at Oshkosh. And uh, just to give you a bit of a background, because he speaks to a really interesting chap here. And uh, so he's speaking to Leon Evans, and he is a chief pilot of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum in Ontario in Canada. Uh, so a bit of background about Leon then. So his love of flying goes back to the cradle. He always wanted to fly. He used to watch biplanes doing aerobatics over the mouth of the River X in England and was fascinated uh, 
by that. After emigrating to Canada in 1958, he joined the Royal Canadian Air Cadets and earned a flying license and a rank of WO2, or Warrant Officer Second. Leon learned to fly at St. Catharines, home of the 9th EFTS during World War II, and instructed there until 1973. He was also chief instructor at uh, St. Catharines Flying Club from 1969 till 1973. He later uh, joined Air Canada in 1973 as well as a second officer on the L-1011 TriStar. Oh. A truly beautiful airplane, as, uh, yes, I do agree with that comment. During his 33 years at Air Canada, he spent many years on different aircraft as Czech pilot instructor and line indoctrination captain on the DC-9-32, Airbus A319, A320, A330 and A340. He was also a co-pilot on the DC-8-63 and 73 all-cargo variants, and it was the best time, he said. The captain on he was also a captain on the uh, 767ER. In 1994, he had the pleasure of training Japan air system pilots in full flight training on the DC-9, another beautiful aircraft, I think we'll all agree. Let's hear Captain Al's fascinating chat with Leon at Oshkosh as we watch some beautiful footage of some of the aircraft that the museum has. So I'm joined at Oshkosh by uh, Leon, who is a, uh, or was a, a former colleague of mine on the Airbus in respect to the fact that we have a, a shared enjoyment of flying probably one of the most comfortable cockpits and office environments. But um, Leon's a little bit special and, and he's going to tell you as to what makes him special because he's flown an aeroplane that very few people get to see. Let her, let her alone fly. Yes, uh, I am very privileged to be the chief pilot at Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum, which in Canada is the largest flying museum. We have uh, 18 flying airplanes, and uh, one of them, of course, the Lancaster, which we, we all love. And people often ask me, which is your most favorite airplane? So I have to watch which of the members of the museum I'm with before I answer that question, because they're very uh, protective of the other airplanes. But it is a lovely airplane. I also fly the, the B-25 and the, we brought the DC-3 here and different airplanes but just wonderful vintage aircraft. But what it's all about is uh, it's the veterans, that's what we do it for. I mean a lot of people sacrificed, the ultimate sacrifice, some of them came back and didn't die and some of them were in terrible shape, you know. Sometimes I think the ones that died were lucky, you know, because uh, the others, so a lot of the veterans as you know will not talk about what went on. Uh, they couldn't. They, it just brings up memories, and I get a lump in my throat every time I try to say that, you know. Yeah, the, the way that the human mind works, it, it's very powerful at, at blocking out uh, tragedy and trauma, uh, and, and it, it's the protective mechanism, and uh, well, we have to respect that. And unfortunately, as time progresses, um, there, there are less and less veterans that we have to thank for our freedom. Absolutely. Yeah, and freedom isn't free. Uh, it was fought for dearly. And we put about 20 to 25,000 school kids a year through our museum on educated programs. This year we even introduced it to grades one, which was fun to see little guys like that running around the museum. And just, you know, we all, I had kids, of course, watching them grow up. And, and now it's, uh, we watch these and, you know, you ask them, well, what did you like the most? And they'll answer, well, I like the tractor, you know, the tractor. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. Well, uh, being, being the owner of a seven-year-old child, I can relate to that yes. because uh, we go flying and uh, the most common question that I have uh, in the back of the aeroplane is, Dad, is there Wi-Fi? <laughs> 
but I, I guess all we can do is do our part to uh, try to pass on the information and the knowledge and allow them to work with it. Now, before we started recording, you were telling me a little bit about when you brought the Canadian Lancaster over to the UK. Do you have a few stories that you can share with the, the listeners over that? Yeah, uh, we, we planned the trip for months and months. We went over to visit the English uh, in uh, the BBMF, of course in uh, January and uh, February and announced it in February that we were going to put this act together and it, it required a lot of work and uh, documentation. The airplane had to be prepared. Uh, we went over it with a fine tooth comb and installed all kinds of equipment like a high frequency radio and a new Garmin tra uh, GTX, uh, GTM, uh, Garmin touchscreen navigation uh, which was certified and would have allowed us to do an instrument approach should we had to but we didn't plan on doing that but uh, then of course it was all the preparation for example um, going into Nasarsawak as a fjord so on Google Earth I practiced going up and down that fjord and I don't think I'd be exaggerating if I said about 500 times I wanted to know the fjord I wanted to be comfortable in there know where to take the gear where to take the flap and once I'd done all that could I turn and get back out if I needed to. Weather was an issue. We did land there, not going over. Coming back, we had to. And uh, that's another story. That was the refueling there is a good story. You know, so we can talk about that. And that uh, simply, um, you land in the Sarsawak, you land to the east. It's uphill towards the glacier and the mountains on both sides. They're not huge mountains. They're like the Welsh mountains, right? <laughs> uh, so anyhow, um, you and I get that joke. But when you come out, you go east, uh, westbound, you go downhill towards the fjord and fly out that way, regardless of winds. Well, for us, we had a tailwind going in, taxi uphill, turn around, taxi back down the runway, and we're facing westbound when we put the chalks in, and we've got to take uh, a thousand gallons of fuel. It's about 7,000 pounds. Never gave it any thought at all. We were enjoying being in Sarswak on, on one of the most beautiful days of the year. Time to leave, though. We've got to get the chocks out, and we can't. <laughs> we're sitting on them. She's rolled onto them. So the only way out of it was to put four pipe, well, all of the crew, four on each wheel, and we started rocking it. And I had two locals pulling the chocks when they could, and the captain up in the cockpit with the brakes. And uh, we believe it or not, we got the chocks out. Otherwise, we'd have still been there. <laughs> I mean, the weather would have broken, you know. We would have been trapped there the next day. So those, those are two stories. Arriving in England, of course, uh, we met the thunderstorm as we were coming in. Uh, it was clear 20 miles to the north. We came past Humberside, and uh, about eight miles from the airport, we entered the rain, and it was, you know the old expression, how, uh, how it was raining. I won't say that, but you know what I mean. I couldn't see the ground because of rain, not because of cloud. And we were at 900 feet. We had an RAF navigator on board, and he says, guys, you're good in this area down to 600 feet, which we did. We had the gear down already, and Don was flying. I was right seat, and just about the time we were going to grab the throttles and push them up to go back to Humberside, get out of this, light caught. I caught a light on the right-hand side, and we, we were coming out in the side, and I says, Don, hold it. There's a river out here, and there's a road, and the canal, and when we looked over to the left, there's the runway. The, the controllers had put the lights up full intensity, and we came in. And, and, and it was wonderful, because you, you'll see the picture where we come in out of the clag, like they would have in the World War II. And at that point, 
not that we were going to do anything that wasn't safe, but we were definitely going to give this a damn good try. And we got in. So it was, and it was well appreciated. We had 84 veterans there waiting for us that day, plus our wives and, you know, our kids that had stayed with their fathers in the car overnight. Like, we don't see that in Canada because the Lancaster isn't the same airplane to Canadians as it is to the British, although the Canadians love it. We have thousands of pilots in this country that can fly it, but, but in England, of course, the Lancaster heading out at night, heavily loaded, was taking the war back. That's what it meant to them. So it, you know, and we never forgot that, you know, but so it's all for us, as I said, all about veterans and kids, and I'm very happy to be part of it. Well, it's an, an amazing story, and uh, I mean, of course, it's uh, testament to to everybody really who contributes with you know time or money or just enthusiasm really to, to keep these aeroplanes flying. I mean, we're we're very very lucky in the two countries to to have these two aircraft flying, and of course, we have to be realists and say that at some point they will stop flying. So we just have to make the most of them whilst we have them. And Al. Um John is here with me now. He's uh, there's uh, three Lancaster pilots here at Oshkosh today. Uh, Bill Craig and Lan- John McClenahan, myself. John and I flew down the Derwent Dams with the British Lank, and John was in the right seat, but he was flying. And uh, at the end of the dam, when we pulled up, there were thousands of people there. But when we pulled up over the hill, there was a lady on the hill, holding a baby buggy, and looking down on us. And I'll, it's a sight that you have to imagine. You're like here we are in a climbing turn, and she's there up there you know and it was one of the many many memories we have of England of course landing in Coningsby uh, wherever we went there were Canadian flags they were so happy to have us there and they really appreciated the effort we made and England generally we were loved wherever we went it was absolutely emotional and uh, so impressive we were you know I'm a, I'm a British Welshman as you know or Welsh Britishman <laughs> whatever you know but uh, they, they just made us feel so good and so glad that we had made this effort, you know. Well, it's interesting because we live in a, in a very modern age and I have a reasonable amount of activity on Twitter. And uh, very, very occasionally you, you'll see uh, just a photograph taken by someone and it, it you know, has, hey, I saw the Lancaster today. And when you actually look at their Twitter profile, they have no connection with aviation. They have no connection with the Lancaster. But just someone has looked up in the sky and go, that's a Lancaster, and that just shows how powerful an aeroplane it is to, to the British people. We fly the airplane around as much as we can, about a thousand feet above the highest obstacles. So uh, basically in the Niagara Peninsula, we try to cover most of the towns. But what we're really doing is flying it over cenotaphs to honor the veterans that are listed on those uh, cenotaphs. And there are still some veterans around and as long as we can do it we will the airplanes eventually are going to run out of time the engines are over 80 years old this airplane is uh, 73 years old and we're working on it constantly we we treat it with great care right now it's under rest not restoration right now it's under a 25-hour inspection we have just done 25 trips with it very successful trips Uh, no hiccups no delays no cancellations so hopefully the next 25 will go the same way. We only do 50 flights a year. And a good per- percentage of our passengers, of course, come from home, you know. Is there a way that the uh, the listeners can help to contribute to the operating costs of your particular aeroplanes? It's, 
we, uh, we don't get much help from the government, other than that they don't give us any conflict, but uh, it's donations and people that pay for rides with our airplanes that keep this airplane flying. And it's not just our airplane. I mean, if you're listening to this and you're in another country or another museum near you, they need you to contribute and help. Everybody does. You know. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Uh, we always ask our guests on the show if they have the opportunity to pilot any aircraft, whether it be uh, an aircraft that's still in production or one that's long since finished, uh, what would it be? Well, I, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say the Lancaster. It's, it, I love looking at it. I love flying it. And uh, I, the emotion that I have when I'm flying it is uh, something that's hard to describe because... First of all, I don't want to do any damage to it, so I, spend, I, I pay great, great deal of attention. Not that I don't when I'm flying other airplanes, but um, this is one of two left flying in the world. And uh, we, just wa we just want to keep it not only safe and sound, but in front of as many people as we can. Because most people love the sound of the engines. People, housewives and their children come running out to see us. I hear it. Because if I wear my Lancaster jacket or shirt, people say, well, we saw you fly over, even if it wasn't me. What am I going to say, you know? Well, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it, you know. I was home in the, on the boat, actually, so. Well, that's absolutely awesome, because I think you're one of the first guests that we've had who actually gets to fly their dream aeroplane. So we've interviewed uh, guys who've flown Concorde and flown the SR-71 and many of them have said the Spitfire and one or two have said the Lancaster. So you're in a unique club as far as I'm aware that actually have got to fly the, the aeroplane of their dreams. So I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you very much for your valuable time today and uh, on behalf of all the listeners keep doing the excellent work that you're doing. Continue to be a flying memorial to all of those people who gave everything. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and uh, I hope the listeners enjoy it. and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Plane Talking UK podcast is a voluntary project that aims to keep you informed with the latest aviation-related stories from newswires across the globe. Producing our content does cost money, though. If you enjoy our show, why not help us keep on the air by making a donation towards the server and website hosting fees through PayPal? Any contributions would be greatly appreciated. Are you an Amazon user? If so, why not do your shopping through the link on our website? There's no cost to yourself, and Amazon pays us a small referral fee on qualifying purchases. To find out more about the show and to meet the team, take yourself to our website website www.plaintalkinguk.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash plaintalkinguk on Twitter via at plaintalkinguk or get in touch via email on podcast at plaintalkinguk.com Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. Flyby 5823 Trent Dane for 23 Manchester Wizz Air 6X Climb Flight Level 210 
direct to Bretman's Park. United 123, maintain 280 knots. traffic control for today Nat. Bedtime. So we came up with the idea of having a video course. Obviously ours are, are better because we've got the experience on the aircraft and we know what we need to be looking at. Something that myself and Andy started initially really to improve our own technical knowledge and put something out there. We saw that there was a gap and this wasn't a media that was being used for this purpose and our hunch was right because there was obviously a market for it. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to fly a commercial passenger jet? Looked up at the sky and thought, I wish that was me? Well now anyone has the chance to have a go at flying in a real aircraft simulator. NP Simulations and Flight Experience London, the only official Boeing licensed product of its kind in the UK, offer you the chance to fly anywhere in the world in their fixed base Boeing 737-800 Flight Simulator. And that's not all. Ground School London offers many different courses for the up-and-coming pilot looking for a start in aviation. With prices starting at just £109, the sky's the limit. So for the ultimate flight simulator experience or engaging preparatory courses, including those for schools and colleges, check out the websites at www.london.flightexperience.co.uk and www.groundschoollondon.com or call on 020 300 40 616. NP Simulations. Fly your dreams. Again, thanks to Captain Al for sending that in. Obviously, he sent us in some awesome stuff from Oshkosh and um, we really do appreciate that um, and we'd, I mean, we'd all love to go out to Oshkosh I think um, for the air show but I think I was just looking into the ins and outs and stuff yeah. it, is, it is a kind yeah. of logistical nightmare to yeah. uh, to get out to Oshkosh uh, Ben have you have you uh, attended Oshkosh? Oh, I've been twice so oh. far um, it's, it's few and far between yeah. uh, and I, I really did pay for it last time uh, in more ways than one and the coming from from Melbourne, it's it's not too bad. Uh, if you sort of stop in LA or something like that, and get your your body clock the right way around. Uh, last time I went, had to go through the Middle East because I was on the West Coast, and the fastest way to do it was to go uh, where did I go? Karatha to Perth to Dubai to Chicago, which was thirty something odd hours. Uh, the downside of doing that, however, is that the time zone difference between Western Australia and Oshkosh at that time of year is basically 12 or 13 hours. So it, it completely inverts your body clock and that gave me jet lag for about a week. So I was, wasn't very, my body wasn't impressed with this whole daytime when it was supposed to be nighttime sort of thing. Well, hopefully, fingers going, crossed. We're... Going Trans Pacific is a little bit easier. But what was the second thing you said you got like burnt twice somehow, <laughs> or was it just the, did you oh, buy lots well, of memorabilia? And... The that, no, that, that that was the um, going back to that earlier story about how much it actually costs to travel in regional oh, Australia. So that mm. it, it it cost me a small fortune to to do that. But um, 
Yeah, and most of that was probably actually the flight down to Perth. So, uh, I could just imagine myself yeah. spending too much at all the stalls. You know, it's like a kind of Glastonbury <laughs> festival go wild. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. Buying lots of things. Yeah, yeah. If, you, oh, if you're going to go to the flight mart, take an extra suitcase for sure. <laughs> Brilliant. So uh, we have uh, we've got some military news to do. Hopefully, Ben, you've got some time to stick around. I know it's getting late your end. Yep, I'm, I'm still good. Oh, good. <laughs> right, so we have got some military news stories to go through. So if everyone's ready, uh... well, Matt, frantically, we should have done a longer segue <laughs> yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ever yeah. so sorry. sorry. Right. The usual procedure is to. I'll, I'll of... be ready when Matt's ready. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. okay, no, fair enough. Here we go. Let's go. So the first military news story this week on the show on the Daily Star.co.uk. And what, I know, the Daily the Star. Daily Star. <laughs> and wow. the Russians have been at it again. Have they? Yeah, and again, because I think this has happened twice, I think, in the last uh, week. But uh, two Royal Air Force Typhoon fighters scrambled as Russian planes spotted heading for the UK. Blimey. Yeah. So Royal Air Force uh, aircraft have been mobilised for a live operation amid reports Russian aircraft approaching uh, UK airspace. Two Royal Air Force Typhoon fighter jets and a Voyager tanker were launched from Lossiemouth Air Base in northeast Scotland for a mission in the North Sea, according to Flight Monitor Mill Radar. Russian aircraft were spotted flying towards Britain along the Norwegian coastline and international airspace, the aircraft tracker said. The Russian aircraft flew to around the point of Stavanger, a city south in a southwestern Norway, before turning back north, uh, according to the Mill Radar site. The UK Ministry of Defence has confirmed that the Royal Air Force aircraft were involved, but would not elaborate. A spokeswoman for the MOD told the Daily Star Online that we do not comment on ongoing operations. Flight monitoring data shows the Royal Air Force aircraft involved in the operation circling uh, near the Shetland Islands in the North Sea and the uh, Royal Air Force's activity has intensified in recent weeks with typhoons dispatched on two separate occasions to intercept Russian aircraft heading towards the UK. The most recent incident which happened on Wednesday involved uh, Royal Air Force typhoons tailing a Russian Tupolev Tu-160 at various points as they flew over the Norwegian and Barents Sea. And uh, it's safe to say that uh, they are kind of, I think, uh, just um, sort of well, to put a phrase, buggering around, I think, really. The <laughs> Russians, you know, see see how they, how much uh, they can uh, cost the uh, Royal Air Force every time they send these typhoon jets up. Actually, what that article doesn't say is, I'm not sh completely sure because I'm not a military man, but I do believe we've actually been doing massive joint NATO exercises in the Norway area. So right. I think they're kind of been probing our little games as well. So oh, <laughs> that article so doesn't actually mention the fact we've been uh, playing war games near their borders as no, well. No, sort of tit for tat, as it were. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. but of course, they keep pushing the boundaries to see if we were on 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 the game while our resources were busy there. Right. Oh. If anything, I think it's good uh, practice for for our boys here in the UK. You know, it, it's um, you know mm. yeah, a chance to have a, a well kind of real-time exercise, I suppose. Go and flex the muscles as such, yeah. yeah. 
Indeed. So next story, Matt, is yep. uh, on this uh, one. is on the Shropshire, Shropshire Star. Star. Yes, and it says the rare Second World War bomber set for RAF Cosford Expo- exhibition. Uh, so the ongoing restoration of the Handley Page Hampton Hamden is it? Hampden, uh, yeah. Yeah, of uh, is one of the museum's longest-running conservation programs projects with aviation with the a- air, with the aircraft undergoing a major transformation following a week a week of sorry following weeks of dedicated work the aircraft now has all four fuselage components fully assembled attached and painted in its original 144 squadron color scheme and serial number it's been a labor of love for one of the museum's skilled aircraft technicians who has built a large section of the aircraft from scratch using original Handley page pre-production drawings from the late 1930s and where possible measurements taken from the partial wreckage remaining uh, from the original aircraft. So Darren Priday, the RAF Museum Conservation Centre manager said we're delighted the Hampton, uh, a lesser known aircraft of the RAF uh, inventory, uh, we're absolutely des- delighted with the results. He added everything is finally coming together after all these years. We are currently trying to source an original rear undercarriage and tail wheel but if one can't be found it will be replicated and made in the centre. Uh, the aircraft has been populated internally with uh, items from the museum's reserve collection and with the next and uh, the next 12 months we'll see work commence on manufacturing flying control wires to enable the elevator and rudder to move as well as fabricating new Bombay doors. Uh, the museum's Hamden serial number P1344 is one of the only three examples of the type remaining and was recovered from a crash site in northern Russia in 1991 and acquired by the RAF Museum. According to records, the aircraft was shot down on the night of the September the 5th, 1942. It won't be long before aviation fans can catch a glimpse of the Hamden as it goes on show during the museum's Conservation Centre Open Week which is taking place between November the 12th and 18th so that starts next week doesn't it? Uh, Mr Priday added that the Hamden plays a vital role in the RAF and our nation's history and I'm confident this rare example will be warmly received by visitors at our Open Week next month. The Hamden was a twin engine medium bomber it was part of the trio of a large twin-engine bombers procured before the RAF joining the Armstrong, Whitworth, Whitley and Vickers Wellington. The newest of the three medium bombers, the Hamden, was often referred to uh, by air crews as the flying suitcase because of its <laughs> cramped new crew conditions. Uh, the, the Hamden was powered by Bristol Pegasus radial engines, but a variant known as the Hadley Page Hereford uh, had inline Napier daggers. What's, what, that, is that a type of engine? I guess Quite so. Possibly. Yeah. Daggers. Yeah. Uh, the Hamden serves uh, in the early stages of the Second World War, bearing the brunt of the early bombing war over Europe, uh, taking part in the first night raid on Berlin and the first 1000 bomber raid on Cologne. Uh, the centre will open between 10.15 and 1pm each day, and admission is five pounds per person. So, yeah, definitely a, a worth How a cool visit to that? RAF Cosford. Yeah, I remember s- watching over the years, seeing the guys at Duxford here in uh, the UK when they re- were restoring and putting together the Bristol Blenheim, yes. which is now part of the BBMF. Yep. And uh, seeing them put that together from scratch, and that was, you know, um, lots of bits and pieces that were donated and, and stuff brought together. And this is very similar. The uh, Hampton's very similar in looks to the Bristol Blenheim. 
um, as a as a kind of bomber from uh, that uh, era. But that first flu in 1938, the Hampton fl uh, flu. But I was just looking at the users over the years because um, there was just under one and a half thousand of these aircraft built, and uh, they obviously flew for the Royal Air Force, but they also uh, flew for the Royal Australian Air Force. Uh, ben, believe it or not, mm. and also the Royal Canadian Air Force. Um, but um, uh, guess have you heard of this particular aircraft, Ben? No, I haven't heard of this one before, um, and I like how they say the cramped conditions. Like you're looking at the photos of the cockpit and things like that, and it, uh, you wouldn't want to be, uh, you know, anything other than a, a skinny bloke, would you? Like in, the, in that little tiny cockpit there, um, and they probably had to crawl over the top of each other. Like uh, reminds me of the Canberra that uh, that we have the the Canberra bomber, which uh, if the bomb, the bombardier, when he goes to, to to use the site, basically has to get out of his chair, walk, and go over the top of the pilot, uh, and into the into the bomb site, which was in the front of the aircraft. Uh, and then, if your pilot was friendly, he'd actually get you back in your chair before they punched you out of the aircraft. If they have to. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's always nice to see these aircraft. You know, obviously being put into museums and stuff for people to see because. You know, this is obviously everyone. Everyone's always heard about the Spitfires, Hurricanes, and all the Lancaster and all the very popular aircraft yeah. uh, uh, from the war, Second World War, and that. But um, these kind of aircraft are not that widely known. Mm. So, uh, for the, those of you watching on YouTube, Matt's just put a quick picture up on there, I think, so I you love can the see picture. what it looks like. I mean, if it, yeah, it looks like that flying suitcase, like they say. But I think it kind of looks like that British bulldog kind of mentality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> looks very. It looks like it means business, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah no messing. Yeah, we're after you. Yeah. So, uh, do you want to take the uh, to, do you want to take the last story, Ben, on uh, Flight Global? Uh, yep, sure. Uh, this is from uh, Flight Global. The F thirty five B connects with the USS Wasp's anti cruise missile defence. For the first time, a US Marine Corps F thirty five B made a Link sixteen connection with the USS Wasp's ship self defence system. Uh, SDSS because of course the US military loves an acronym <laughs> allowing the stealth fighter to securely share digital tactical data with the US Navy vessel and surrounding support fleet information that could be used for defense against an air attack sharing data from the F-35B sensors with the SDS hardware and software that coordinates defensive missiles, decoys and electronic weapon warfare weapons on board surface ships would allow the United States Navy more situational awareness of incoming missiles. Anti-ship cruise missiles flying at subsonic and supersonic speeds just above the surface of the ocean pose one of the greatest threats to vessels. A systems manufacturer Raytheon says the data shared between surface ships and the F-35B could, could help detect targets, assign tasks and share aircraft status information such as fuel levels or weapons inventory. Information is key for any commander, and shared information from multiple sources and vantage points extends our battle space and our advantage over enemy threats, says United States Navy Captain Danny Bush, who leads the Program Executive Office for Ship Self-Defense System. Now, with the ability to link our sensors and weapons from sea and air, SSDS is providing a level of interoperability and defensive capability never before av available to the expeditionary fleet. USS Wolfs is an amphibious assault ship, a miniature aircraft carrier and landing craft transport. 
that can launch the United States Marine Corps short takeoff and vertical landing F-35B, which I believe is the same that the uh, that you guys are getting over there for the uh, the Navy. And uh, the Link 16 is a uh, it's an encrypted military network that's used by uh, NATO and other US allies uh, to share tactical data um, like from the F-16 and things like that, where they can yeah. uh, talk talk to each other with targeting information and things like that. Uh, and this is actually probably similar to uh, a trial that the uh, Australian Defence Force has been doing between our, because uh, we uh, have the P8s now that are coming online to replace our uh, aged P3s. And uh, they've been doing some trials with some of our uh, air warfare destroyers and things like that. We're, basically using the P-8 to see over the horizon uh, and so they can coordinate uh, their attacks and things like that by being able to uh, basically have a radar going around at 30-something thousand feet that you can't get off a ship, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Now, we've got these here, over here in the UK, obviously, the F-35. With uh, These are what are appearing on the HMS Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. Yes, our, our latest aircraft carrier here. No, you mean our only aircraft Our only carrier. aircraft carrier, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but, yeah, these... Um, You're doing better than us. We've retired ours. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we, I think, uh, safe to say, oh, we got rid of all our, our best kind of um, VTOL aircraft when we got rid of the Harriers to the yeah. Spanish. Um, yeah, and, yeah, who uh, are still... Who are still using them. Very actively using, using them, them yeah. 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 But, uh, no, we've got the F-35 now. is on the HMS Queen Elizabeth. I think they're still doing the trials and stuff uh, on board uh, with that on the aircraft carrier. But, yeah, um, yeah it's always good to see an F-35 story. But once they Still, start showing this data, I think the plan as well is going to be flying with an army of drones behind it as mm. well. So, I mean, it's yeah. great it can launch the, uh, the cruise missiles, but it'll also be future data sharing with drones. Yeah, I, I imagine. Which is is, a, is apparently the future. Drones, I think, and um, yeah, I, well, I think UAVs. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it, they, 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 as I say, it'd be nice for them to be used for something that is, um, you know, sort of not annoying other aircraft. You know, yeah, <laughs> be flying, quite, be flying into other aircraft. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's where we bring the military segment to a close. So uh, we're going to have a quick catch up then with uh, everyone. I know Stuart, you've got a few questions you wanted to chat to uh, Ben about in regards yeah. to ATC and stuff, but because yeah. obviously. Things are slightly different, I think, in the, uh, the UK, aren't they, with uh, ATC as they are to um, Australia? Oh, no, hopefully it's an international standard. <laughs> uh, but, no, it's just really interesting. You were talking about r remote um, remote operations. Um, and I was just really wondering about, because it's the same with these remote, uh, remote control towers where they've got going to be in a room with cameras just watching someone else's control tower. In your situation, it's a radar room a thousand miles away. But how much local terrain knowledge or training do you get so that if the pilot's in trouble, you can tell them, oh, you know, look out for the mountains on your right or something. It's an extreme uh, example, but how much local knowledge do you have of what's the nearest divert airport? Or that That's actually part of... Um, so Adelaide has only very recently moved from the actual airport in Adelaide. Yeah. Um, that, that was only done about 18 months ago. Okay. They moved it and consolidated it to Melbourne. Uh, it's... And shortly before that, they moved Cairns, which is in northern Queensland, that, that came down to Brisbane. Hmm. Uh, as part of the safety case for that, um, we get uh, one or two trips a year to the to Adelaide. Um, with with the company, we spend, we spend a couple of days there. We go and visit um, in Adelaide. We've got three towers that we deal with, so Adelaide International itself. 
Um, we have a, a training airport called Parafield, which is uh, only about probably eight odd miles north of that. Yeah. Um, and uh, just for good measure, we decided to put an air force base about four miles north of that airport. So um, we three have, runways uh, to make a mistake on. Raf Base Edinburgh is just just to the north of Parafield, so and that's where our, um, our maritime patrol aircraft are based. Okay. There, uh, as well as our uh, air uh, ARDU, well, I know the acronym, mm. uh, Aircraft Research and Development Unit. So that's where they, you know, they're going to put new weapons on aircraft and things like that. Mm. So we, we get to sell a lot of P3s, P8s. Um, we've got a few restricted areas that are around in the terminal area um, because of the western half of the, the terminal area is basically the Gulf of St Vincent. Yeah. So uh, they, they go out over the water there and they, they go and, you know, hunt hunt the boats and um, they put submarines in there every now and then just so they can go and find them and, yeah, but you, and well, things you, like You that. obviously know the area very well and you work there yourself. But in the future, though, is there going to be like a new trainee cadet based in Adelaide who will go and spend just two days there then be sent back to Adelaide but expected to know the whole geography and the whole area? This is what you know long-term you, future uh, it's, it's part it's part of the long it, it it takes a long time to get an approach rating okay um yeah. just purely because you have aircraft close to the ground you've got to know where all the terrain is and and, and things like that and divert airports and i mean that's mainly for light aircraft obviously that you need you sort of need to have an idea of where the little landing fields are and, but you, you learn a lot of that with local knowledge like it, it takes a long time to actually get the endorsement Okay, yeah, so they would have to go and get an endorsement in that area before they were sent off to remotely operate it. This is what I'm really concerned about. This remote operation, I appreciate the training before they get a radar approach ticket, but to remotely op operate for an area, you have to have been there. This is what I'm just concerned about. Yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely been considered as part of the safety case, is, is that that's part of it where you, you have a thing of you need to do familiarisation trips on a certain rotation. Okay. So you get to you get to go there. You, um, we actually have arrangements with the major airlines um, here too that we can travel on the jump seat. There's yeah. a lot of paperwork and arranging these days, mm. obviously with security yeah. the way it is. Mm. Um, but we we have the uh, the ability to arrange those trips, which gives us the insight of seeing the operation from from their point of view. Wow, yeah. uh, which which works really well. Oh, good. Well, that was that was it really. <laughs> I was just worried about the, the terrain, really, and that you know the local area. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as I say, because if you, if you, I suppose if you're there and you're you, you sort of you've been working in that area for a while, as I say, I suppose Ben Ben obviously has got an advantage because that's where he was working before. But as you say, you you, you are almost the eyes, um, you know, for the, the people on approach, aren't you? Just sort of as you say, giving them markers and telling them where to 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 look out, um, you know, for certain yeah. markers and things, especially if it's the first time they've ever come into the airport. Yeah. If they're new to the area and if things go wrong for the flight crew and they're dealing with other stuff it's a lot easier to have someone local say yeah, you, you know mm -hmm. the big hill to the right or, or for the vfr traffic mm -hmm. especially or yeah, yeah. you know a lost people we, we know where the we know where the light and the but you get to used to the like i've never really lived in adelaide or anything like that but you get used to the major landmarks um it, it kind of gives me a giggle every now and then where you get the uh, the local police helicopter who gives you a oh we've got to go to such and such a suburb um Adelaide is one of these places where basically every estate is a different suburb. Okay. Um, they've they they obviously got a discount on naming suburbs or something. <laughs> um, they 
Um, so they, they, if they name a suburb that you're not familiar with, you sort of got to go back and tell, mm, mm. you know, where, where's that reference where you are at the moment sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, depending on what kind of operations, you know, that's mainly police helicopters or emergency helicopters. So they get priority. Um, it's a police anyway. operation, obviously, you've got to, but they get priority, but the police operations too, you've got to be obviously a little bit careful the way you're worded. Um, we just, we just we, had a question yeah. coming, which is why I can see Carl <laughs> barely, uh, sort of cracking up there. I'll leave you. I'll leave you to share. Yeah, we, with we had a we had yeah. a question, uh, Ben from uh, Richard King says, uh, "Do you get many kangaroo runway incursions?" <laughs> Not at the capital city airports. No. Um, however, it is it is a threat uh, at like the, the more regional airports. It's it's definitely a thing. Um, I think. Off the top of my head, I believe Qantas Link hit one at at, um, at oh. a place called Mildura, which is a big regional centre mm. in northern Victoria. That's the state I live in. Um, very nice part of the world, but yeah, uh, if you if you're landing any time sort of around dusk uh, or dawn, uh, you've really got to be aware of that if you're out in the country sort of areas. Mm. Um, and sad, sad to say, guys, um, kangaroos are the dumbest animals on earth <laughs> um, i've well you know that the, there is a reason i have a very big steel bull bar on the front of my car right okay um it's kind of kind of a mandatory requirement if right. you live in uh, northern western australia it's more because uh, you we have everything up there we had uh, cows uh, on the road goats uh if you get to southern wa you're talking more about emus and camels right um so uh, so you guarantee home, a barbecue when you go home. Who decided to <laughs> yeah. jump out in front of the car when I had a road train about five kilometres in front of me and another road train about five kilometres behind me. And for some reason, in front of my car was a good time. Of course, absolutely. Uh, it's always uh, going to be the way. I said, the, the question from Richard, obviously, Ben, do you, do you get many kangaroo runway incursions? Neil. Say, Neil's response is just priceless, where it says, only on short hops. I've seen. <laughs> oh, well done, Neil. Uh, this is why I love the chat room. Uh, <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> for, for, for Richard, I, I have heard the, the best comment on Melbourne ground ever was uh, an A330 was taxiing out to go to, to Perth or Southeast Asia or something um, and just stopped. And the ground controller asked the pilot, what are you doing? And uh, the pilot came back and said, there's an echidna crossing taxiway echo without a clearance. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. It's, it's... That's the sort of thing you want to see on one of those memes, those yeah. uh, aviation memes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That'd be so good. Yeah. So, Stuart, obviously you've been off. Uh, you've been off for a little you're, while you're because off work of your. At the moment. Yeah, because yeah. Of your to a life of leisure and getting my feet up. But, literally. but cast your mind back to before the accident. <laughs> how, how, how are you getting on with the uh, with the Embraer flying uh, and stuff? That was so long ago, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I was yeah, still loving it, still yeah. enjoying it, and uh, yeah, flying routes around Europe and getting familiar with the jet and hands-on. Any flying. any favourite particular airport to land in Europe at the moment? Any sort of one airport that's uh, well easy to get into and out of? No, no, they're all good all fun. Good. Yeah, yeah. What I'm doing at the moment though, uh, I'm doing work from home, doing our aerodrome operating manual. So we have a Part C manual which covers different aerodromes we fly to and just a little lesson there's category a airports which is any airport that you can fly at because it's got one ILS each end or whatever and nothing to worry about so it's an easy one anyone can go there yeah. and then there's cat b which have special requirements like uh, maybe it's got high altitude or something unique about the runway and then category c are the special ones like london city where you'd need special training because it's a six degree glide slope 
or uh, it'd be in a unique location uh, mm -hmm. where you need specialist training either in the simulator or on the ground. So I've been actually helping the company rewrite our category B manuals because they haven't been updated for several years. So I'm doing all this. I'm getting paid to do Google research on all these nice airfields. Oh so right now, I'm like, we've got places like Ben Becula. Oh, I look forward to flying there and Lisbon and all these nice places. Yeah. Unfortunately, the company won't let me go flying there. I just had to do it all re remotely right. researched. Oh, that's a shame. But, it would uh, have been nice to have sort of been stuck <laughs> on a few of these routes yeah. to get first-hand experience of, uh, of said, exactly. said routes. Yeah. Oh, maybe, yeah, maybe in the future they'll let me go. Um, but yes, it's been quite interesting doing some mm. armchair flying, and, what, and I've been getting paid to watch YouTube videos on approaches to various airports. So how about so, the uh, how about the Embrags? Obviously, you've, you've been used to flying well, pretty much everything, but you've been used to flying the caravan for quite a number of years, and you've obviously moved on now to the Embraer. Is it is it a nice aircraft to fly as a, as a pilot? Yeah, the pilot sort of kind of yeah seat. Yeah. Um, it is, yeah. It's an amazing aircraft. It's jet. It's it's manual controls with hydraulic linkages as well. So it's actual real flying. Because um, the control yoke is one of those weird, the kind of the um, oh, the, the, the Y M sort of shaped uh, the Concorde boomerang. The Concorde boomerang. <laughs> that's yes, it. Yeah, exactly. No, that, that yeah, that has taken a while to get used to. But I can now just fly it with like one finger relaxed. <laughs> um, obviously, to start with, for the first few hundred hours, you're yeah. holding on for dear life, and like your fingers going white knuckled. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, yeah, it's quite easy, familiar, and just leaning on one side. The, the only probably the nuance with the thing is it doesn't have like most modern aircraft. It doesn't have auto throttles, so okay. even in the cruise, we're always like constantly all. Yeah. There's no, there's no pulling out a side tray and and having your coffee relaxing. Oh. You, you always just got to keep an eye on the plane. Yeah. Um, is it quite a spacious flight deck then? No, not for really. you. No, no. <laughs> it's, it's more comfortable than a one five two. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. that's but, not hard. <laughs> though, <let's be> <laughs> yeah. But there's no nice jump seat, and there's not no. nice area. So every time I get out, I've got to kind of a uh, give a rear view to my captain, or uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <What a trip laughs> give them a good elbow across the head as I uh, get in to sit down. Um, so yeah, no, but uh, it's comfortable where I sit. Uh, maybe some of the seats are a bit old. Mm. The aircraft are are a little bit aged in yeah. that respect. Yeah. But the equipment's good. We're having a lot of issues um, because of the out of date FMSs. Um, so well, they're very basic. Systems. I didn't realise. I was talking to uh, one of our in chief engineers that the, some of them are like nearly twenty years old. So you imagine a, a computer from twenty years ago, yeah. trying to program mm. modern day uh, waypoints. It gets. Uh, I guess uh, our ATC man has probably seen that with companies with their basic FMSs going 10 degrees off track for a waypoint is that something you see <laughs> in Australia? Yeah, not, not very often these days like we can actually tell the difference if if you guys actually have a um, like a failure where um, the Saab 340 tends to get it every now and then where the FMC just doesn't want to play ball yeah. so they, they fly it around just with VORs and things like that and, and you can definitely tell the difference between them tracking on, on VORs versus tracking on RNAV, it makes a big difference Yeah, well, we, we upset German ATC a lot because of that uh, sometimes yeah. I mean, when you're putting parallel runways and they're just drifting left and right trying to catch up with it and we're just like we'll just turn the computer off and hand fly it yeah. Um, yeah, less embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so just quickly, and so have you had any really big challenges then since you've um, you've been flying Embraer? Any kind of things that were technicals? Mm. Uh, I had one scary moment. I don't know if I should really talk about. It. <gasps> <laughs> no, okay. All right, we, we don't but know the airline. The, you no, fly the, for, the, so. the main thing in the airline world is um, just the turnaround times. Yeah. Okay. It really, it's just it's crazy. The flying bit is really yeah. quite easy. The stress and all the the, the issues is on the ground when you've got 30 minutes to turn an aircraft around, unloading, you're, you're micromanaging, you've got fuel, 
crews, ATC, taxi instructions, company maintenance people, company crewing calling up to make changes to the roster at the end of the day. The dealing with the cabin crews had a really bad set and we've just uh, you know we kicked off some passengers on the last flight so there's paperwork we need to fill out mm. there's a missing bag it's just and you've got to cramp all of that as well as prep the aircraft do the tech logs right up the next set program the FMS someone's still got to do a walk around which is takes a long time as well if you want it done properly mm. so that that's the stressful bit of flying yeah. <laughs> there you go. the turnarounds essentially yeah, yeah. Well, it's good to talk to you. Anyway, it's good, to, good yeah. to, uh, to have you back on, Stuart. And also you, Ben. It's been lovely to have you on the show and have your input. So uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for joining us, Ben. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been great. So, yeah, we're going to start to wrap up the show then, episode 241. So we're going to say a big thanks to everyone who's joined us in the YouTube chat room today. There's been loads of pay, all the usual family yeah. members in the chat room today, keeping us very entertained, I must say, yes, in the chat room absolutely. this morning. Yeah. So thanks to everyone across the globe. Yeah. I shall be heading off to Stansted Airport in uh, a couple, couple of hours', hours yeah. time. Gemma's off to Dubai uh, cool. today. Uh, she's flying out, actually, just flying out tonight uh, for any of you want to want to stalk because we know it's just <laughs> <laughs> but she, she, she said yeah, yeah. Uh, but no she's flying out tonight on uh, with a triple seven three hundred ER with Emirates yeah. and uh, yeah she's flying out from Stansted tonight around about uh, should be around about half past uh, eight tonight on uh, EK034 uh, so if anyone wants a track uh, she did message me earlier and said if anyone wants a track we just you know, tell her listeners right, okay, just, okay. to stalk away. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, she's uh, hopefully uh, going to be landing in uh, Dubai sometime tomorrow morning around okay. about uh, sure seven o'clock. So yeah. she's looking uh, forward to that. Richard is saying, "Oh, brilliant party at Carlos's tonight." Though. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm on my own. I'm on my own for a whole week. Yeah. Um, so I shall be. Yeah, I'll be. Yeah, mm. on my own cooking, cooking and stuff like that. It's going to be terrible, I tell you. Yeah. But yeah. no, looking forward to getting down to Stanson, doing a bit of aviation spotting while oh, I'm I bet there. You are. Yes. So uh, we're aiming for a Friday show next week I think yeah. guys but uh, follow us on social media to see, search all the social media sites for Plain Talking UK you'll find us on there if you want to send us some feedback good or bad we don't mind what it is, is podcast at plaintalkinguk.com that's podcast at plaintalkinguk.com and if you want to get your hands on one of our marvellous t-shirts it's www.plaintalkinguk.com uh, click on the shop button and you will be able to find uh, the t-shirts available from there that is where we bring episode number Ooh. 241 to a close apparently not and don't forget for those of you who may remember what uh, Nev was talking about next week we have got some really 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 amazing content coming up in the next few months that's uh, yeah. in the uh, in the in the oven at the moment cooking yes, absolutely. away busy cooking away yeah, yeah so we have got some great content yeah. coming up in the next few months but yeah as Matt said we're going to bring episode 241 of the show to a close big thanks again to Stuart and Ben for joining us today as guests and to everyone who downloads and listens to the show so from me Carlos here in the PTUK studios have a great week Weekend. What's left of it? Because it's Sunday today. It is Sunday, fair. Yeah. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Have a great time. Goodbye. Bye. Take care, everyone. Bye. See you Bye. soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.